0: Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear.
1: Every you do.
2: This is the final pack of also-rans. Another 15 movies to run down, of course there is. But they're all good this time, no stinkers. All of them are worth a watch. In my humble opinion, the ones towards the very top of this list are especially great. And I've already rewatched them loads of times. So let's just get into it. And first up, we're going to head straight into a conversation all about Black Mirror... Uh, This one is with podcast regular James Davies. And yet I did speak about it in the sci-fi corner section a little bit. And of course, primarily, Black Mirror does just deal with tech. And they place tech in different science fictitious scenarios for each of its episodes. But every now and again, they dabble in horror. And that is why we now arrive at the rather horrific episode that is entitled Men Against Fire. Now there's going to be spoilers throughout this chat with Jim and we do cover a few other episodes as well. From memory we definitely talk about San Junipero for instance but it is a good one. So here you go, Jim Davies and myself having a conversation all about Black Mirror, Men Against Fire.
3: Village about three
1: miles east. We've got reports of a food store broken into... Shit
4: stolen! Locals think it's roaches.
1: Every roach you save today, you condemn God knows how many people to despair and misery tomorrow. You can't still see them as human. Understandable sentiment, granted, but it's misguided. We gotta take them out if humankind is gonna carry on in this world. That's just the hard truth. Gotta make sacrifices. So you recently logged your first kill. Huh? First time out. It's impressive. Yeah, I guess. So you do it again. you did a big thing. You should be proud of yourself. Okay.
5: When I've looked at Black Mirror, I've, I've watched about five episodes. So I'm not a completionist, but I'm aware I've been aware of Charlie Brooker for a long time. And I've always been a fan of his, like going all the way back to the 2000s the 2010s. But in regards to the current fears that Black Mirror addresses, um, a lot of that has been borne out in the last couple of years, the, the way the media manipulates us, the way the the way the media can manipulate our sense of moral reality. And I suppose in um men against fire there is a the themes there, what that that episode I think is trying to touch on either consciously or unconsciously, is our fears of of the other and the fear of immigration, mass immigration, open borders and things like that. I think it, at the time it was made, it was touching on some of the political events of that year. So we had Trump winning the election, we had Brexit and both of those things from a media perspective were largely brought about through propaganda around the fear of immigration and the other i suppose that again you could you could we don't want to draw too many parallels to mass formation psychosis with that but it's all manipulation at the end of the day how how, how our behavior is manipulated by the messages that we receive um, on a consi- on a consistent basis
2: yeah i can see i can see from watching it how instantly i was just thinking about how the german society at that time pre-world war ii was just being um, constantly manipulated drip by drip by drip by drip and how these things can build up and how that how they can be successful if that's your agenda so like i i liked what it was doing i just don't know if this was the best way to express it and also in such a short time time frame in such a sort of light program. It felt light to me. And they're really heavy themes.
5: Yeah, they're quite heavy themes. I think the central idea of that episode of, of Men Against Fire is, is that human nature can be manipulated against its own uh, better outcomes. Um and looking at looking at doing a little bit of um research into it, there's a there's a lot of kind of tropes in there, you know, it's got it's got shades of Starship Troopers and aliens and kind of Vietnam um, movies like Platoon and stuff like that. I mean, the opening sequence sort of also sort of reminds me of um, when they're trying to. You know, it's a bit of like inglo- Inglorious Bastards, in fact. You know, when they're looking for the Jew, when he landed, yeah, goes boy. in. He's looking for the Jews and and um, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of stuff that's been um trafficked in that we've already seen before and heard before but the the original idea of this is that it comes from him reading sla marshall's book men against fire which came out after world war ii and it's this american war general who made a claim that only i think it was like only 15 to 20 percent of um soldiers would actually aim at the enemy and actually fire most of them sort of aimed above their heads and it, it actually talks about that in the episode but i think Charlie Brook has read this book and and so he's read this book and then he's inserted that idea into into his art here into, into this episode and that's worth exploring that as an idea but it, that idea doesn't really come into fruition until the end of the, in the end of the episode so a lot of, most of the episode is just kind of derivative until that point and then it's like, oh, this is an original idea, and then it's kind of over. Then you're sort of left to mull over this idea. But as a, as a consequence of this book, um, this SLA Marshall's book, in Vietnam, uh, generals are aware of this phenomenon of of reluctancy, reluctancy to sort of kill the enemy. So they they push the propaganda even harder about the cong being, you know, sort of like insects and subhuman and kind of stuff like that, in order to just turn soldiers into just um, sort of to make them more kill ready to make them more willing to to end another human being's life i think that's an interesting idea to, to mull over after watching the episode mm. and, and also how that relates to immigration um i think that that theme in itself if people are going to pull that thread out of it is quite clumsily and i think it's the reality of immigration is, is is so complex so much more nuanced than that but um again it's sort of smacks of kind of like the a reverse form of bigotry sort of bigotry of working classes sort of hating immigrants and things like that which i think although is you can find that to be true if you look for it it's not always true and you know bigotry goes both ways left right people sort of you know um, debate over these topics across purposes and in mostly in bad faith they don't always take the good faith version of their arguments as as the ones that they want to um, compete against if you see what I'm saying that's quite rambly but
2: no no I I get it it is he's taken the the issue that I have with this episode is its length because he didn't have any rules going forward once he was with Netflix like he could hand in a 50 minute a 30 minute a two hour episode like it was it was up to him what he felt was um what he felt was apt for it he could then do so uh, it's interesting where it's placed as well so generally by fans of black mirror uh, the the best episode or one of the best ones is sanginapero yeah of, i loved it yeah oh you love <laughs> that one great i okay. love it so yeah. how did you feel about that one
5: i as i really like sanginapero it does so many good things it recreates the sort of 80s vibe um, which I'm so in love with at the moment. I'm so I'm so in, so drawn towards the '80s over the last two years, as a sort of period of time where optimism was 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 freely available in media and in. I love what I love about the '80s is it did the optimism didn't um, sacrifice any of the the art and the realism of sort of sort of lyrical content in music or any. It, it still the '80s was still. It still had darkness involved, but it was just so much more vibrant and alive. And I suppose the the sort of forty-year-old in me sort of um, has rose-tinted glasses about the eighties. But I mean, I love Sandra Naperio. What it does um, with re- it has a lesbian relationship, a romance at the centre of it. But at no point is the lesbianism um, a sort of agenda. There's no agenda behind it. There's no political agenda behind what Charlie Brooke is trying to do with that although it was premeditated, as I've watched quite a few interviews with him talking about different episodes, he did make a conscious decision to put female protagonists in roles um, for that season, because previously he'd always sort of, you know, you write about what you know, and you're more, more inclined to write about male um, protagonists if you're a male, but he made a conscious decision to have a lesbian relationship, have more females in leading roles. and. It, it totally works as a romantic relationship at no point do you go oh it's lesbian or anything like that it's, you completely accept it and um at no point do you feel preached to which is the most important thing i think this sort of gender swapping trend in hollywood is kind of missing the point and sort of actually taking a lot of progressive ideas or projects is it's taking a back step it's a gender and I think it's not doing the cause any good the way hot Holly was you know approaching these kind of things of diversity and inclusion. But the way Brooke has done it is spot on. He's just it's he's at it, 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 no point do you feel like they're trying to say, it isn't lesbianism good? It's not telling you what to think. It's yep. just giving you an emotional journey, which just so happens to be a lesbian couple, which I think is perfect.
2: There's That's a couple a bit of bits. On. Uh, in it, which you touched on there, that I think make it really work as an episode of telly as well, which is something special. And I think it's why it resonated with me. The first one is a real aesthetic thing. It's just the choice of music was correct. Uh, Mm. It was time sensitive and and right. There was that recent Fear Street series um, of films on Netflix, which was just getting the years wrong slightly. And it instantly takes me out like nine inch nails didn't release that song until the year after why have you done that um but yeah he was spot on with it he got it exactly right he got what you would be listening to in in that club at that time uh you know even if the song isn't a particularly you know populist one it was in there because it just felt right and i thought it was a really good choice and it made me sort of immerse easier into that world But the really important thing, which I think uh, so many filmmakers get wrong, is with a love story, the inevitable, like, have a breakup or have a testing moment, and then you get back together at the end. That was handled so well when things broke down, which normally is a complete clusterfuck. It's always a mess um, because you're just relying on what other people have done and cliche after cliche, whereas this, it felt real. It felt like there's reasons behind it it felt honest and true which I think is why it resonated with me everything else was just gravy but like to get those those things right or rather to get the gravy right let's say that made the rest of it work (laughs) a really good meal I'm (laughs) talking nonsense sorry (laughs) (laughs) I
5: get what you're saying look for us I know that you really love the 80s as much and I like I'm sort of I was uh, growing up i was always about punk and hardcore and you know 90s i was a 90s kid really when i came up so i didn't care about the 80s i just wasn't interested but as i've, I've grown into loving the 80s so it really does you know all those nostalgia um uh, notes are great i, I lap those up completely i love the music and like you say it was it had continuity and it was obviously written and Constructed by someone who loves that ear and was living through it at the time, and you can really tell that with Charlie Brooker. Obviously, he's quite a fastidious thinker, and he's quite—he uh, has—he's an intelligent guy. He will know what all those cultural um notes are, and he'll know where to put them. So you know you're in good hands with that guy, and right down to you know the the arcade games and things like that. You can you can almost smell those arcade games if you've been to arcades when you were a kid You can smell and feel that coming out of the screen it's crazy but like you say with the the characters as well what I liked about this episode and perhaps I don't like about other Black Mirror episodes is that in this episode the characters felt like they had constraints and they they had real life they had a real existence within that world and they were acting and reacting in a real emotional way it felt alive whereas in in other episodes I felt like the the characters just kind of floating in and reacting in 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 some sort of like a cloud of uncertainty like it just doesn't feel very real it doesn't feel like we don't really know the the limitations and the rules of the of the world in which they are being placed you know and i guess that's the, the limitations of anthology type series is that they don't have that time to build the world and establish um, the dynamics and the of, of the situation that they're in it's just we're just supposed to take things at face value so, yeah, I, I, the other thing I really liked about the episode is that it was optimistic and an optimistic view of technology. And Charlie Brooker has said himself that it was like he got sort of tired of the accusation that Black Mirror is this, always just like this nightmare fuel, you know, as he calls it, as his phrase, it's just always playing to the slippery slope of technology into like a dystopian future. He wanted to do an episode which kind of toyed with the idea of how technology could possibly make our lives better. Um, or as it as it as it pertains to this episode, our deaths better or afterlives better. So this is a quite interesting concept. Um I loved it. And I guess that because it's such an outlier in amongst the canon of Black, Black Mirror, it makes you want makes you wonder if people aren't clamoring for more optimistic episodes. Mm. People do love this episode. and um, it can't just be because it's eight of the 80s soundtrack.
2: Was there a particular one that you've seen that you were like oh do you know what i hate this episode <laughs> yes
5: um the, i didn't like the first episode the uh, is it called the national anthem oh the pig one the pig one i watched that uh many many years ago and it put me off black mirror up until this point probably um i just didn't like it it's kind of a ridiculous scenario and i mean we know what happens with if, yeah, if, people listening to this don't know about Black Maria don't know what happened in that episode just imagine the prime minister of the uk in an intimate situation with a farmyard animal and you'll get an idea and it i mean it's a ridiculous episode the scenario is ridiculous but it's played very darkly and, and very straight by the actors and it's very dark satire um i just didn't think it was as clever as um the other stuff brooke has done things like nathan barley and scream wipe i think are just like top tier stuff really that this just felt like poorly conceived, bad episode ridiculous, absurdist version of the thick of it or something And um, it's, it's hard to say that because I really like Brooker I really like Charlie Brooker's output
2: This is an odd thing to say but it's very me I was so excited about it because like you, like Nathan Barley and all those things, it was like subverting what I thought comedy was and things like that and I was really into it Uh, And it still was only sort of talked about uh, amongst like the inverted commas, like cool comedy, like people that, you know, Uh, but anyway, and then I watched this and then everybody loved it. And it's that populist thing where, because every single person was talking about it, I didn't join Black Mirror again until this season, which is bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, I just was like, I'm not having it. I don't want to know. And that says a lot about me, I think. (laughs)
5: i think I think, I'm, I think i would i was probably a victim of the same thing of not wanting to be on the bandwagon when it's it's hitting its crescendo you want to discover a band after they've or, or anything any piece of art when everyone else has kind of moved on and then it's your thing and it's just your thing and you're not just being influenced by the hype you know you just want you want to enjoy it without all that extra nonsense around it, i suppose
2: yeah i don't know i I think i I don't do is it, it our ego's definitely, definitely is I just want to be better than <laughs> everyone else Like I've, I've, there's something that's happened to me over the last <laughs> decade that I just think about myself then what were you doing what were you thinking and it wasn't just that it's with everything like you say music every single thing you miss out on so much because you just want to be discovering that next thing be the first and have something of your own but at the same time if, if it's just your own then that's rubbish you you want to share share these loves it's a strange way to be um we, we can we'll go back to men against fire because there's a couple mm. more things i just would like to to sort of touch on mm. i found it in points quite video gamey and you mm. being a gamer i was wondering if that appealed to you uh in that way
5: um another thing about charlie brooker is that he is. He's a video game critic as well, amongst many other things. Oh, he, right. I a, had crit- no idea. Yeah. He, did, he did famously, like way back in 2012, 2013, he did a thing called the most influential games of all time. It was something like this. It was like an hour-long documentary about video games. And he, you know, way back in sort of like the early 90s, he was critiquing video games. It's one of the things he started out doing, working for PC Gamer magazine. So, um. So if you pick up on video game vibes in his episodes, that's why it's it's very intentional. Right. Um, so, yeah, in, in regards to... Well, going back to that documentary, it's worth pointing out that Charlie Brooker, the episode, this documentary, this hour-long episode about video games, he went through, like, a potted history of, like, the most influential video games. And as a sort of twist at the end of it, he said the number one most influential video game of all time is Twitter. And at the time... It was kind of like, wow, okay. For so a lot of people, they hadn't considered that the social media that they were using and the interactive nature of it was them playing a video game. It's kind of flipped it on its head. Right. And and people started to go, oh God, yeah, the gamification of everything is, is happening all around us. You know, it's no longer passive um, media um, that we're consuming. We're interacting with it. Um, and he described Twitter as as like a... An RPG, like a video game, like a role-playing game that you know, we we choose an avatar which is loosely based on a real version of ourselves, and we try and gain popularity and likes and followers, you know. Again, it's clearly the, the gamification is there. In regards to Men Against Fire, um the video game aspects which are in that episode, I guess like this idea of augmented reality, we have this like mass technology, which like they put like It's sort of like Oculus Rift or something like that. There's these new technologies which can change um, our reality field and augment it with sort of digital information. That's in there. So I guess that's what you're aiming at. I think there's other episodes where it's more obvious what he's talking about with video games and things like that. But um, yeah, I suppose you could talk about how it sort of is a bit like Call of Duty or something like that. And I know Charlie Brook is a real critic of these big sort of Call of Duty type, sort of like mindless killing type video games, um, starts to make us question the line between sort of video games and just regular passive entertainment, like say a film, for example, Bandersnatch. I don't know, did you see that? I did.
2: You did see it? I did. Did And what did you think of that? It was the first one that I didn't enjoy, even though it had some of my favourite actors in it. At the time, um, I loved the idea, uh, but I just didn't think it was executed well. I thought they they needed to spend a lot more time on it to make it uh, as mold-breaking as Black Mirror. I I think Black Mirror should be, but the whole synopsis and idea behind it, loved it.
5: It's an interesting idea, like you say. It's been executed better. It sort of evoked. It sort of it turned a film into a choose-your-own-adventure. Sort of fighting fantasy book, which I think you might have talked about before in one of your other episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I don't know if you remember all those years back when we went to Brighton of the Babies, which was a band we used to be in together. We went to a house party with the drummer Jamie. It was his family that they lived there and they were all stinking rich living in Brighton. And uh, we did meet a guy who, by the name of Steve Jackson, which was his uncle. And Steve Jackson was, yes, Ian Livingstone no. and Steve Jackson. And I remember speaking to him and freaking out, going, oh, my God, I can't believe you're Steve Jackson. And you possibly didn't know who he was at the time. But I've since, you know, spoken to him on Facebook a couple of times. I think it was Facebook over the years. But, yeah, we had fighting fantasy books. So Bandersnatch was kind of trying to do that with with films, trying to make it into that. But it's a little bit behind the curve Bandersnatch because as far back as, like, the early 2010s, we had games that were sort of like interactive movies already. Um, which was sort of more narratological. And so less about kind of mechanics or the ludology of games, like the kind of, okay, here's a rule, here's the thing, like a, like a, more like a sport or something that has clearly defined limitations and you're just trying to win the game. Yeah. Um, games started to become more narratological, more about the characters and the emotional beats of, of the story. And, you know, what's the journey, you know, what are you going through emotionally through this experience? I started playing a game recently called The Walking Dead, which is, you know, it's obviously a TV show now or has been for a long time. Previously, that was a comic. I think it was previously a comic and it's just like an interactive comic. You know, it's got a kind of cell shaded graphic sort of aesthetic Um, the characters emote; They have micro expressions and it's, it's like an interactive movie. And all you do is just kind of walk around a little bit and interact with people and um, make choices. Like you would in Bandersnatch, and that to me that's much better executed. In Bandersnatch, just kind of it just feels maybe it was the story itself. You know, the the narrative itself just didn't compel me to want to play it. But I suppose an interface like Netflix just isn't made for that kind of thing, so it's limited. If you made it into a video game, it might have been better. If you had like a control in your hand, it might have worked. Controller in your hand, it might have felt more intuitive, possibly.
2: Maybe I when I watched it i thought right how's this going to work in the cinema because i was just thinking like this is the future this is going to be the future and like (laughs) you'd have to go from screen to screen to screen i just don't (laughs) think i don't think technology's there but i think maybe one day if like um you know those helmets that you can put on and and you know you've got virtual reality going around maybe something could work like that but then if you think of the, the countless hours extra hours that actors and and whatnot have to to go in when you've already got like such intense gaming systems and people that are putting in like five years into one game just to make it that immersive, I don't think cinema can compete right now, nowhere near.
5: Yeah, I don't know. Hollywood's kind of in a low ebb at the moment. I don't think people are really enjoying films um, across the board. I don't know if that's just my son it was just my opinion as a 40 40 year old guy hollywood is not at it's artistic high it's not in a golden period i don't you know people look back at disney and we can sort of plot when it was good when it was so so hollywood i don't know if in the future we'll look back at this period of hollywood and go well, what happened you know where did all the ideas where did all the new ideas go where were all the character studies and the, the sort of those all we had was just sort of CGI and rehashed sort of um, sort of uh, superhero movies. It's a bit sad, really, what's happened to Hollywood. But a lot of other things have come in its stead, uh, have competed with it. So things like video games and just long-form TV series, which you know you can invest in characters over sort of countless hours. You know, it's um, it's hard to compete with a lot of different things, isn't it?
2: I was speaking to I've forget his name, so I probably won't put that bit in. <laughs> but I was speaking to an author the other day, and I said a similar thing. Uh, and he said that he and his sort of friend group at that the time of Jaws and the, the years that followed, the summer blockbuster, he felt that that Hollywood had disappeared at that point. Um, what he knew is Hollywood. And like, things were changing for the worst that the, the artistic merits of cinema were were going. And I imagine if you were like in the 1930s and along comes Universal Monsters being so successful, you might think, oh man, I, the, the days of the talkies, um uh, ruining Hollywood, you know, I, I guess it might evolve into something else. But when I say things like that, I'm always thinking of vinyl and records and how how something so massive and so huge and important to so many people is now an afterthought how people have just moved on to other ways of um other ways of getting their entertainment so yeah who knows where where the future could be but i personally think you're completely right i think it is a sad time for for blockbuster cinema and things like that i don't think it's exciting but then if you go back to as i say to the to the late 70s or to the the 30s people were thinking the same thing
5: yeah some people have sort of a lot of people point towards this obsession hollywood obsession with like um super big budget sort of superhero movies and they sort of say well you know there was a time when Hollywood was just pumping out westerns like there was just westerns 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 it was almost like there was an obsession then so they sort of like oh well, you know this is Hollywood's done this in the past but I think I saw a sort of mini doc I think it was just a YouTube video talking about this and actually crunched them numbers and actually it's a ridiculous ridiculously high percentage of films that occupy the, the, you know all of the awards and all the highest audience numbers and all this that uh, are Hollywood movie uh, sorry superhero movies these days whereas back in say the 60s 50s 60s or uh, and the 70s um, there was a mu- there's a much wider plethora of different genre that was being featured in, hol- in, in award ceremonies you know in in, in among audiences audiences love lots of different types of movies but it just seems that audiences are just quite willing to just lap up these kind of rehashed rebooted derivative cgi um sort of kind of like buffets of just special effects i i can't get with it at all it's it's really sad i think we we're, we're all the worse off as a culture because of it and of course a lot of this is just driven by the corporate greed of wanting to sell all these movies to overseas audiences, namely the China market, which is obviously the biggest market in the world. And so the, these lowest common denominator kind of narratives, these characters are kind of unrecognizable. You can't really relate to them because they have to be so sort of empty that that they can sort of be cross-cultural, if, if you like. They're just kind of like cool people with, that look cool with cool gadgets, which, don't go on any kind of type of journey. I mean, I could go on for hours about how much I hate these films. Um, Scorsese said it best that they're just theme parks. And I think that might be a reductive way of looking at it, but I think it holds some water.
2: Thanks again, Jim, for taking part in this. uh, And I hope to speak to you again. And it's been honestly, just like the last one, magic.
5: hope so. I do ramble a lot. So I'd go off on all kinds of different directions, but hope you got what you needed.
2: Massive thanks goes out to Jim there for joining us on the show. Uh, We had several comments from people letting me know just how much they enjoyed his passion when he was talking about that Hunchback of Notre Dame film during our 20s and 30s episode. So yes, a great pleasure to have him back. And I still haven't told him about your feedback. So maybe you'll hear it now. If not, mental note, take that on board. Make sure I relay your messages to him. Anyway, he will be returning uh, because we're going to be talking about a video nasty on Patreon soon. It's the one I can't pronounce, so (laughs) I'm not going to bother here. Okay, up next in the also-rans. Okay, here we go. The Iranian supernatural scare fest that could under the shadow. So many people raved about this one that I got super, super excited. And you know what? I thought I was going to be sitting and watching this new voice, someone with a fresh vision for horror. Instead, it was simply just a very proficient spooky tale with some well-crafted scares. But there was nothing really that new that was brought to the game for me. I don't think my gazumping this one is the film's fault though. I just think it turned out to be a victim, really, of its own hype. Following this is a definite left field choice, The Greasy Strangler. (laughs) (laughs) Janet
1: loves me. I love her. You're making a big mistake. (laughs) I am the Greasy Strangler.
2: You're all right, Braden. Thanks,
5: Dad. That means a lot coming from you.
2: Now, I think if you were to come back to me in five years' time, this one would be in, or at least very close, to my top ten. I hated it on my first watch. The surrealist take on the serial killing and that mighty boo humor. Well, when I first saw it, I wasn't a fan. Claire, though, she loved it. She couldn't get enough of it. And I think through osmosis, It just seemed that this one has got under my skin and now I'm just regularly quoting it and I laugh to myself when I think about it. I think if you want to be scared, then this one isn't for you. But if you want to be sick, then yeah, maybe this is going to be your new favourite film. Now, for some science fiction horror. This is the sequel that nobody will remember, but I quite liked it. Independence Day Resurgence – All I can say about it is just think of the first one, change it a little bit, doesn't matter how you change it, done. Now, for one that I wanted to like so much as I went into it, this one is called Siren. It initially found life thanks to that anthology movie VHS and there was a section in that called Amateur Night. It featured a succubus played by Hannah Fearman and I thought it really stood out from the pack. So when I heard that it was going to be made into this full production, I couldn't wait to see it. Alas, Siren is not a patch on that short, but it is still pretty gripping. It's darkly brutal. And you know what? I would be happy watching this one again. So the next three had a 2015 festival release, but they didn't gain full releases until 2016, which is why they're here. And this first one is another rather surprisingly cool anthology movie itself. It is called Southbound. Now the difference with this one is that each segment ranges from good to great. There's just no crap in it at all. Confusingly though, one of the segments is also called Siren. But yeah, all the segments, they're roughly highway based. Uh, If you're in the UK, that's motorway based. That's the theme. It's pretty rad. If you haven't seen it yet, I would definitely recommend it. I think I saw that one on Amazon Prime. Following this is Evolution. This one is an aquatic horror, but not really. It is a slow burn art house movie that recently found its way onto Shudder of all places. Uh, It's about an isolated child that doesn't get out much, but he can see the hospital from where he lives. And, well, what the hell is going on in that hospital so late at night? Watch this and find out. Next up is the indie flick Road Games. And this one reiterates these well-known sayings in horror. Don't hitchhike, saying number one. Saying number two, don't trust Barbara fucking Crampton. Now for another one that at least a cabillion people loved, Shin Godzilla. And there is so much to love about this take on Godzilla. Even me, Paul, me, Paul that's me, I was totally engaged, I was engrossed, the world building was top notch, and also the threat was cool, that was until the middle point where it lost me due to all this excessive scientific chat, that could have taken about 5 minutes and not 30, and of course after that it picks back up, the ending is incredible, but Shin Godzilla, you blew it, still in my head, there is a personal cut of this one that is near perfect. And if you were looking at this as a chart, as you should be of course, then the next one sits at number 16. It is called The Black Coat's Daughter. It has fantastic sound design that can often save a film from itself when it overplays its hand, especially when dealing with slow burn. And The Black Coat's Daughter is case in point here. Elvis Perkins' score is just so, so good. Simply outstanding. It allows this movie just to dwell wherever it likes without making my mind wander to anything except what's on the screen. And this film feels evil. You want evil? You've got evil. Forget the black coats. This one is a micro-budget wonder. It's called Cronewood. Cronewood? It's a fantastic Irish found footage folk horror. That couldn't be more up my street really if it tried to be. And again, I found this one on Amazon Prime. Loved it to pieces. Highly recommend. You know what to do. Following this, we head over to a movie. And this movie is called Hush. Shh. Hush. Plus, we've also got our next guest. And it's a newbie. Andy from Road to Nowhere podcast. And as I mentioned earlier on, when you do your Road to Nowhere search, you got to spell nowhere, K-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. And when I watched this for the first time, probably five years or so ago now, I remember it being a very tense experience. Today, knowing the beats of the story as I do, it was more about the craft The skill set of Mike Flanagan really shines through but that thrill that I experienced on my initial viewing it was no longer as intense. I mean, how could it be? So maybe this film is a sort of one and done thing? I think what we should do right now is speak with Andy and we should find out, should we? Indeed. thanks for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. Um, before them. we start um, with your history of horror, which is my favourite bit uh, of the show, tell the people a little bit about your podcast. What is it about?
6: So the name of the podcast is Where, uh, Road to Nowhere, sorry. Nowhere spelt with a silent K at the start, which is a reference to the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, The Planet They Go To, which is a the hollowed out skull of a celestial, I think, if I'm remembering that right, simple things, um, and basically we've done a few, the, the main premise of it is we started off with Halloween Kills because we had all seen it at the time and that was just kind of a jumping off point, and then we took Judy Greer from that and looked at her back catalogue and see if there was anything, we basically focus on comic book, sci-fi or horror movies and anything else that she'd been in, she'd been in War for the Planet of the Apes. So we went on to that next. And then there's Woody Harrelson in that. So he's in Scanner Darkly, which is the next episode. So it's a way of just kind of keeping it a wee bit different because you can always go back to the same actors and things like that and look at a different sort of genre they've been involved in or a different style of uh, the same genre and gives, gets an interesting chat maybe, especially with Scanner Darkly, I'd not seen that since it was out in the cinema. So re-watching, it was quite cool.
2: And is it something that, going forward, you've got lots more plans with? Or is it a monthly show? How often is this thing coming out?
6: It's a bit scattergun at the minute. I try to do either one or two a month. Next one that will be coming out is a Scream, just like a spoiler discussion. A of The latest Scream movie, because again, kind of big release, so I thought it was good to discuss it. I've got a couple of ideas that I'm, I've put to the guys that I work with on it, talking about maybe expanding, getting guests on and discussing like favorite directors things like that. having an episode once a month with a guest t- discussing their favorite director and things and i've got a few interviews that i've just been lazy and not edited and <laughs> kind of sort out it's my worst part
2: the reason i listen is because it's different from what else is out there there is so mm. many podcasts that will pick one film and just go through that one film and you get tired of them no matter how great they are there's only mm. so many a week that i can down Uh, so it's nice to get a podcast that's dealing with the same sort of thing but just in a different way Uh, and it's nice to have your own little niche which I think you've got Mm -hmm. there with Road to Nowhere so yeah that's that's why that's what drew me in.
6: Right it's yeah that's what I'll enjoy about it because I do love all sorts of genres subgenres, and horror and comic books movies and sci-fi is generally what I stay with that's my kind of my kind of go-to but being able to jump between like one week having the sci-fi element of it, like I think we've got one coming up on Alien Resurrection, which isn't the best movie, but it's quite a fun one to discuss because it's just nonsense, like, and it's terrible CGI and things like that. But sometimes that's a, a good wee bit of fun you get from it to then going on to something like, as I said, a screen chat or a lot of the Marvel ones that are out just now. There's so much in terms of content that we can kind of fall back on.
2: Yeah, you're never going to be short of something. Yeah, especially no, no, if you go, go down those alien rabbit holes, where are you going to end? Mm. <laughs> Every act has no, been of no, those things. No. Um, right. mm. Okay, so what is your history with horror?
6: It was a wee bit later. I remember being quite uh, averse to it when I was younger, primarily because I was just scared. Like I remember seeing in the old video stores the the front cover of Tim Curry's It um, adaptation. This used to scare the shit out of me just seeing that, so I'd never had an interest in it. And they always looked really graphic. A lot of the, the the horror movies you've seen in the video stores with the front covers used to look really graphic. So I kind of avoided it to an extent when I was younger, but then I started reading things like Goosebumps and, and watching the TV show and um, Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think that was the other one that we had uh, kind of regularly on BBC or ITV, whatever it was on. And it kind of developed from those Goosebumps shows, And then into reading more horror before watching. So I read a lot of Stephen King probably when I was a bit too young. And it is now one of my favourites. I reread it every couple of years, even though it's a doorstop of a book. And like it was sort of developed from that. And then softer, kind of getting into softer horror in terms of action, actiony horror like The Terminator. Um, I watched that at my, my grandparents' and... Predator Two, I think this is the first one of the Predator series I've seen before I saw the original. Wow! um Just the, the I think it was always on BBC Two. It was one of these ones that was always on at least twice a year. They're obviously cheap enough to get the rights to because it didn't perform too well. Yeah, it was it was that kind of softer input put into that. Then I, I remember when we got our first DVD player, it came with a Kevin Bacon movie called star of echoes Wow! Which, have oh, you seen yeah. that? Mm?
2: Yeah, I love yeah. it.
6: Yeah, it's great. And it was around that time, a kind of M. Night Shyamalan, Sixth Sense, sort of psychological horror. And that, again, just got me a bit more kind of interested in it. And nowadays, I will watch pretty much everything, that, to an extent. But, <laughs> so there's some titles that I'd maybe avoid, but aye, now it's just horror is my go-to, really.
2: I want to take you back to something you mentioned there, mm-hmm. with it being a doorstop of a book. Now, yeah. this also was the very first horror book that I saw on the shelf and thought, I need me some of this. Mm. Uh, but I've... And I'm, me and you are not the only people. So it's such a weird first book choice or the first one that you remember because mm-hmm. it is so huge. When you open it up, it's not like the the writing's big. It's tiny and the pages are so yeah. thin. Mm-hmm. What's the attraction of such a tome, do you think, at that time? I think because of how it...
6: Certainly, the the TV the TV adaptation is kind of ingrained itself into the culture. Gets people interested straight away with that image of Tim Curry dressed as Pennywise. Sure. I think that adds to the kind of intrigue about the book. For myself, it was around that because I'd seen the the, the picture on the the video cover. Um, it is quite a difficult one to read. I read it from a book report in high school as well which was Jesus. a terrible mistake. Yeah. Uh, especially the fact that my English teacher really didn't like me. So, and she knew I hated public speaking. So she let me finish the whole seven minutes or whatever it was and then turned around and says, I couldn't hear any of that. You need to start again. I was like, oh, fuck you. That's terrible. But I, it was just a, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of kind of pop culture intrigue around it. And I think that's why people kind of gravitate towards it and why we've had another remake now as well, haven't we? So, mm.
2: Sure. And, like the, when that remake came out it was the trigger for so for so much content that's now out there um, and it's only starting yeah. to wane now although as soon as that started to wane the screen thing was such a success last year's halloween was such a success yeah that still all these doors are still opening i'm, I'm always amazed at like how like even if you don't bond with the film yourself because that one's been so successful so okay. many are going to smash in the into your sort of peripheral vision and you're going to pick at them. Mm-hmm. that what i'm sort of heading towards here a terrible link but still um <laughs> with netflix the mm-hmm. so we're getting there we're getting to hush we will but with netflix <laughs> i found this so irresistible there was something about like there is an, a new channel for me when when a few of my friends had subscribed but not many and like the whole sky thing was starting to fade and it was like this is going to be a new way to just absorb movies just like a cinema and I was so excited and got in quite early I thought on it Um, and when they started bringing out their own movies that really sort of got me because I just thought here is a way where something can flourish like um sort of slashes in the 80s or something like that they can get their own niche and they can Mm -hmm. can really do whatever they want here i don't know if it's particularly worked out like that but i'm wondering do you um specifically go to netflix when you're looking for some new films and things or is it just like that lazy late night choice for you
6: i think netflix
2: obviously we are going to talk about hush and it seems like they've kind of banked on mike
6: flanagan quite regularly I do think that their, their kind of horror choice can be a bit hit or miss and can sometimes get a bit lost in the algorithm that I've seen you miss out on so many and then you find out like a couple of months down the line. But Hush Hush was years after it came out and I first seen it. My go-to actually is usually, I mean, I've got Shudder, which is obviously the ideal for the likes of ourselves. I think Prime has a, again, it can be a bit of struggle to get through, but there is definitely a lot, a big, a broader kind of sense of what you can get through that. Netflix, I think, is focusing started bringing out its own material. I thought, how is that going to work? How are they funding that, and what are they getting back in terms of box office and things? It was quite strange, and I don't even think people really know now.
3: No, I think it. it's just, a mystery. No, no,
6: they say, well, we've had this. This was the biggest opening we've ever had. Okay, right, we take your word for it. You're not going to show us the numbers and anything like that. <laughs> said, give us any figures. Aye. And they've kind of, it feels like they've gravitated possibly a wee bit more towards your yeah, big budget action, while still kind of keeping a hold of Mike Flanagan, which is obviously always a good thing. So yeah, I generally go for Prime just because I think the selections—the selection is a bit more obscure as well. Like you're talking about those weird 80s slashers you get, or I think Extro's on there just now, the kind of weird sci-fi horror yeah. thing. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely a better selection than, than Netflix still get good stuff in netflix but yeah i definitely prefer prime i think
2: prime is i i just think fantastic but the 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 interface how you navigate your way around that thing is appalling and yeah, yeah it's it's for, for horror nuts i've spent a few nights myself just like loading into a my list so i don't lose them um, yeah, and then of mm-hmm. course, by the time you get round to them, they're no longer free anyway, and you you have to pay. But people, but, but you know, I'm I'm thinking with Netflix, I think that what did it for Netflix was a, a film called Bright with Will Smith. Like right? I noticed yeah. that after that, there was a ton of these like Netflix movies. These this is mm-hmm. the way we're going to roll from now on. So it must have been huge. Again, mm-hmm. no idea. <laughs> no, do, do not. Um, but yeah, they started to notice that they'd actually sort of got some in-house directors like Flanagan and things like that, and they've brokered some sort of crazy deals with them. Again, all hush hush. But like mm-hmm. I noticed a couple of the films that that came out initially after this success of Bright was were not great. So I remember the open house um was one that was just appalling, and it was like, oh, is this. Is this what it is? All my excitement yeah. for this. A tall grass also left me quite disappointed, yeah. and that was a Stephen King thing. So I was like, Yeah, I mean his,
6: his uh... son, wasn't it? Joe Hill.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, man. I mean, yeah. the excitement coming in for that. Um, mm-hmm. but I I even I didn't even want to see Death Note after some of the reviews that came in for that. I don't know if you ever saw that one.
6: I have, yeah. I watched that actually on a flight. Um, I think at my iPad, downloaded a load of movies. And watched that on a flight to somewhere. Can't remember where. Yeah, it's not great. I, I mean, I've no, got no kind of um, loyalty towards the original anime or anything like that. I don't know anything about it. But I just did. I just find it really boring, to be honest. Yeah, it's tricky.
2: So mm. in this in this way, I just think I was quite down about it. But then the stuff like you say. Oh, hang on, I've missed this one. I've missed that. And that's when yeah. you do find like the babysitter or Cam or Gerald's game and things like that and then like, oh hang on you know there is something going on here yeah um, but i think it's much like any other sort of film house now is some are going to be great some are not but my initial initial thoughts of what netflix could be it just never panned out it, i honestly thought we'd have like this new revival like you would go to the video shop in the 80s or whatever like right. the stories you hear about and be this the rows of like their own film sort of thing oh, didn't hmm. happen so we get to Hush, you picked this one, so you must be a fan. But what was it over all the other choices from 2016? What made you think, oh, hang on, Hush, I lo- I like this one. What was it?
6: Um, I thought the concept of it is kind of unique and Mike Flanagan, really. I just I'm a huge fan of pretty much everything he's done. I've missed a couple of his earlier ones like I started them um, before I wake today because again, that was one that's a Netflix original and I didn't even know it was on there. Um, (laughs) Oculus is one I've still to check out, but from Hush Onwards, I think he released three movies in 2016. Anything that he's done, I think has been fantastic. The concept of it being Katie Siegel plays, her character is a a deaf mute, living isolated in her um, her cabin and she's getting terrorized by this kind of faceless, would you say faceless, kind of in-betweeny sort of guy. I've kind of a massive, not a massive part of it, a, a certainly a large chunk of it without her even really knowing. And it's short as well. I realised that again. I watched it for the second time this week today and an hour and 20 minutes with credits. That's yeah. great. I love that.
2: <laughs> Who doesn't love that, man? That That's mm-hmm. great. And I, I also love the fact with this one that it's, it takes place over the one night. Uh, mm-hmm. I love a film like that. It's really close, couple of actors. If you can get that right then it's yeah. really going to sort of stick with you. And I think this one does. I remember coming to this knowing that there was Don't Breathe coming out shortly. So I knew that that was about. I uh, And I just thought, oh, here's Netflix's version that is going to be complete. Right. It's just going to be trash. And it turned out, I, I think, it's just as good. You know, I, I, I just yeah. prefer just edging Don't Breathe, that original. Mm. But... I don't know, but I mean, let, let's talk about Hush because I, I'm so impressed with it. And I think it might be just that central performance uh, of Kate Siegel. I, mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I just think she draws me in so, so well.
6: Yeah, especially coming from, obviously I don't know her background in sign or her, sign language uh, or her kind of um, knowledge of it, but she's incredibly convincing from it with her, her usage and her kind of expressions and her movement and the way she kind of works her way around her house having this, uh, these disabilities. I think there was a bit, of, possibly a wee bit of backlash about it because there wasn't a, a deaf actress used. Right. I, I don't know. I can't talk either way. Obviously, I've never had to to suffer from that. But the performance that she gives her, a smarts as well as her vulnerability throughout the whole thing, just, yeah, really grab her. It really grab you, sorry, to kind of care for her a lot, which was one thing that Flanagan's, I think, has been really good at with his horror is getting the scares but getting the heart as well.
2: It's very convincing. Um mm. when you when you sort of want to compare something like that, you'll be looking at maybe um oh what was the recent one a quiet place where you've mm-hmm. actually got uh, the the deaf actress in there and yeah, yeah I mean I can see where people are coming from when they, they point sort of that finger at this film, but not to take anything away from that performance. I, there There is something special about it. And I, I guess maybe it is that star power. She's a face that you recognize from other things at that point, but mm-hmm. you're not sure what. Uh, of course now, what are we six years, five years later? She's Mm. much more well-known now. Uh, But at the time, it was like, oh, I know this person, sort of. And and I like that intro, the film, and you're getting to know her. And the setup's really, really interesting. Mm. But what Flanagan did so well with it, I just think the pacing. And, of course, because they know each other very well, (laughs) these two people. um, I just think he's directed her so impeccably well because he knows her so well. (laughs) Yeah, there is a moment in this and it's it really gets me. And it's towards the very end where she feels breath on her, and that's the trigger towards yeah. the end of the film. And her reaction, um, it, it just gets me every time. And I just think, well, this is why she was chosen for this. Not because of mm. any sort of interpersonal relationship or anything, because no. she can do this. Um, mm. any other moments in this film where you think, oh, actually, this is this is fantastic.
6: It's the point where she is under the kind of crawl space. I love that. And she's putting her hand up to feel his footsteps, kind of, as he's walking towards the door. She managed to get out the house, but can't go anywhere because she's in the middle of nowhere. There there is nowhere for her to go. And it's just that tension. And I thought, even though I'd seen the movie a few times, I was sitting going, does he look down and see her? Because she had her hand up. There's the, the kind of the space in between the the kind of the wooden slats. I thought, this, I, I can't remember if he it stabs her through the hand or something like that. Because um, Mike Flanagan, even in this one, you can see he loves his hand trauma. <laughs> like, he's just <laughs> yes. absolutely obsessed with hurting people's fingers. Like, you get at the end of this, and she gets her, her kind of just stamped horribly. And we've obviously had the Gerald's Game thing, which is horrible to talk
2: about. <laughs> well, let's talk about... Um, uh, as I said to you, Mike bloody Flanagan, he's all over the place and I think for good reason, much like you, you. I can't fault his work. There's two that I think are average uh, and I want to put that to you and see if you think the same thing. So, I mean, even that first film with his absentia, I don't know if you've seen that one yet, but that, no. that really pulled me in and it was really interesting. It was like one of those things where it's like, I wonder what they're going to do next sort of thing. So, yeah, and they normally just always burn out, but not here. Mm-hmm. And then of course you've got Midnight Mass, the most recent thing that he's he's done with Netflix. Again, yeah. huge success. And I I thought was really interesting. But there was a couple. Yeah. I want to pick a hole. So I've I've got here, we've got the I've <laughs> written two down that I thought mm-hmm. underperformed for me. And one <laughs> is the Bly Manor, and the other one is Before I Wake. Now you're only a little <laughs> bit through Before I Wake. Um, yeah. So it would be interesting to know what you thought of that at the end. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, Bly Manor, what was your thoughts on that one?
6: I watched it once and wasn't sure on it. I think coming from uh, Hill House, which was terrifying. They had so many great kind of ghosts and monsters in that one. Into Bly Manor, which... Barely had anything. You had The Lady in the Lake, I think it was her name, like Kate yeah. Segal, who was really unsettling. But then watching it on a second viewing and taking it as it was, as this kind of romantic, gothic tale, a bit more kind of... The way I would see it is Hill House was more an American horror. This felt more like a maybe English-style horror of the women in black or something along those lines. So going back and watching it as that... And having an understand it, it was more about the relationships between the people and their concept of what was happening to them in the house I, I, I do genuinely love it now actually like, honestly, really? you, yeah oh, I think it's great it's not as good as Hill House but I think yeah it's it gets the emotional beat spot on with it the kind of central characters with their relationships and a couple of things land flat like the the voiceover for Carla Gugino and yeah, I just think it's the performances he gets as well, like from Rahul Kohli, who came back to, and again, Victoria Pedretti. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, I just think he absolutely nails that aspect of it, while it not being as as scary as the, the Hill
2: House series. So did that come to you on your second watch? So the first one, you weren't too sure, and the second one, it's actually all come together for you?
6: Yeah, I think so. The first one, I did still enjoy it. Like, there was bits of it. I, I, I do feel sometimes with Netflix shows, they could cut off a couple of episodes. Like, especially oh, they've see. done it with the... Yeah, they've done it with the Marvel ones where they wanted it always to be 13 episodes. It had to be that. So then you had four in the middle that just were pointless. Sadie. Um Yeah, kind of sagged a bit in the middle. And I, did, I, I got enjoyment out of it, but it just wasn't what I was hoping for from the guy that made Hill House. On the second watch, I just think I appreciated the performances and what these characters were going through. And watching it from that point of, the kind of point of view of where you know they're going to end up, kind of made the story feel a little bit different for me, a bit more kind of impactful.
2: And what about the film work of Flanagan? Do you think that Hush is in that topper uh, echelon for him or do you think it's more more middling from what you've seen? It definitely goes to a couple of... Um,
6: What's the a couple of techniques that he's like to use. Um you see quite a lot in Hill House with shots that he's taken in on first view and you don't notice where there's like a figure in the background. You can see the kind of early stages of that with with the the man, as he's just called in Hush, or man, I think you can know, he's got a name, and that kind of style of filmmaking that he's going for, but it's not just about the the character in front of you, it's about what's around him as well and he gets those wee elements of it starting to kind of sprinkle in early doors and that so it is really well shot a lot of the, the tracking shots as well where it's just one shots following Maddie through the house are excellent and it builds and kind of racks up the tension quite well um, but yeah definitely I, I think it's definitely up there with some of me's best
2: I think for me the reason why Hush is so high is because of the tension that this mm-hmm. film is just all tension. It's build and build and build. And that release, um, I don't want to go into spoilers. The reason why I don't want to go into spoilers is because, as you've said, like even though there's a ton of people that would have seen this, it is buried mm. away on Netflix. Um, you know, exactly. And it might be one of those you've skipped over. So the, the reason why I just wanted to get you on to talk about it is so people, if they haven't, just click on it. A final question. Mm-hmm. So with regards to... With, this is so great because what I feel like is I feel like I've just got my own personal episode of Road to Nowhere. <laughs> this is just, I'm just going to talk about Mike Flanagan stuff. Um, that's right. I want to talk about Doctor Sleep. Please tell me you've seen Doctor Sleep.
6: Doctor Sleep is probably in my top ten horrors of all time. I absolutely love
2: it. Fantastic. Have you hmm. seen the uh, that extended version that's come out? Recently? Yeah.
6: Yeah, that's so. I've got the um, the 4K and. <sighs> The first one that I I seen was the Director's Cut and I loved it, absolutely loved it. I've read the book as well and then I got the 4k and sat down to watch it and then realised that the Director's Cut only comes in standard Blu-ray so I was fuming about that. (laughs) I could only watch (laughs) the the cinematic release in 4k but yeah uh, it
2: was was so good man. I listened to a podcast with Flanagan and he also was furious about that as well. So, yeah, no
6: wonder, I mean, the time great. and effort that's went into that, and it seems to be that the, the director's cut is the, the kind of popular choice. Like sometimes it's it's not doesn't always work. Like the director's cut can maybe change how a movie feels for you in a, a negative way. But the what they, they added into that put so much into the movie, I felt.
2: It's almost a a moot question now, but I I do want to just talk about the the sort of uh, return to the overlook there. Because Mm. for me, that's what I was most worried about this. And I didn't know whether Flanagan would be able to to handle that himself being such a fan, whether, you know, Mm. he got too precious about it, whether the pressure was too much. It's really got to mess with your head being a director in charge of Mm -hmm. something that you love and going back there. And I just yeah. think it was executed so well, um, mm-hmm. so perfectly. And just so I'm going to play out with this scene, like, what's your favourite moment from that from that movie? I think it would have to involve... I think Ewan
6: McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson as the kind of main hero and villain of the piece are both excellent. I think Rebecca Ferguson is just superb in whatever she's been in. When she starts the the scene in, the, in kind of her own library and she's reacting to getting attacked by that wee yes. girl inside her own mind is superb. Um, the scene in the toilet where Danny is seeing his dad again, but it's played right. by, what's his face, uh, Elliot from E.T. Yeah. That plays uh, oh, Jack Nicholson. Um, he's in Mike Flanagan stuff all the time now. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, I've totally forgotten the guy's name. Um, that was just an interesting kind of take on it. And he puts in a, a good kind of slight performance of the butler from the first shining movie, kind of mixed in with Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance. But yeah, it was it was fantastic. Um have you heard the story about him when he was shown it to the King family and the the Kubrick family? No. No. So obviously Stephen King famously hates the shining. The, Give it, the, the yeah. Kubrick version Aye. Um, And before it was released Mike Flanagan invited King's estate or King, Stephen King and his family And the Kubrick estate to watch That with him To watch it before he released it And he said he was sitting in between both of these <laughs> families That didn't really spoke very well And just absolutely shitting himself And at the end they both turned around to him And said that was great That's absolutely everything we would have wanted from it so that would take some balls. pressure on the man, I know. <laughs> and it's really good. Like it, it does a good job of making it and the book has a massive difference between how the book ends and how the, the the movie ends, because obviously at the end of the shining book, they've got um the overlooks burnt down in the book. The overlook doesn't exist anymore. So there's a huge difference in how they end. But it does a great job of kind of melding in the world of King and the world of Kubrick and getting a positive out of both of them.
2: It was extraordinary to, to come out mm. of the cinema because it was it was on for such a short time as well yeah. uh, and, and our locals playing it. And to just to come out of there, I hadn't felt like that since I was small, you know, going to see Aye. Back to the Future 2 or something. <laughs> it just felt so... It, it was one of those things where you just feel like everything you wanted has been ticked so yeah, okay. That's great. Um Andy, thank you so much for, for taking part and hopefully uh, you'll come on again for another discussion.
6: Definitely just on this Paul Man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink.
1: And then the drink takes a man. And it's so dad. Medicine. Medicine is what it is. Bonafide cure-all. The mind is a blackboard. And this... is the eraser. A man tries. He provides. But is surrounded by mouths. And have family. A wife. A kid. Those mouths eat time. They eat your days on Earth. They just gobble them up. It's enough to make a man sick. And this is the medicine. So tell me, pup, are you going to take your medicine?
2: I'm not. A big young thank you to Andy there, new guest, like it, thanks for chatting with us, I do love a fresh guest on the show, but for now, here's a little horror trivia for you, when I decided to begin this podcast, I set up a letterbox account and I logged in this massive list of movies that I hadn't seen before, this next one is the very first movie that I picked, when I realised I was going to do this podcast, I thought this is a good place to start, so many people hate on this. But I think that's probably because of the male gaze. Maybe because of the shark effects. Maybe because they've just seen this all before. But I say fuck 'em. them. I love this film. This is called The Shallows. And all those reasons and more are why it sits at my number 13 spot. It's brilliant, brilliant trash. I'm not a serial killer. That is the title of the next film. It's not a declaration from me. I mean... I might be a serial killer. You wouldn't know. This film, though, is a decent slow burn. I initially thought that this would just be like a drama with a few horror overtones, but it turns out to be a sort of odd Cronenbergian tale with some drama that swims around behind the scenes. But you've got this body horror protagonist being being the main focus. It drew me in all the way through. And I thought, you know what, I really like this. And then the ending happened, and I didn't expect the ending to be that good, but it was that good. I'm definitely going to revisit this. I insist that you do. It is called I Am Not a Serial Killer. And then finally, we have The Masterful, The Girl with All the Gifts. This one is a modern zombie film. That is actually good. And it has actual interesting ideas and some subtext to it. Plus, it makes you feel uneasy. It's full of gross killings, scary kids, yes please. And as you know by the time you've listened to this, I actually put a zombie film in my top 10. You can still do original things, you definitely can. And that, my horror loving mates, is the 15 films that I would say are downright decent, but not quite top 10 fodder. Let's get back to the chat now, shall we? Though, this is the very top three my top three favourite picks from 2016. this movie is first establishing itself the palette is almost exclusively 25 different shades of green it is bonkers and once you notice it you really notice it this movie it looks green now the director he based this siege movie on john carpenter's the thing and straw dogs as well Uh, it is intense it is miserable it is violent it's really hard to watch Just like Straw Dogs, it's very similar in tone. But here's the rub with this one. Overall, this one just has this glossy, high-production feel to it. And even though the venue where this takes place is gritty and grimy and disgusting looking, me having the experiences I have, I can actually smell that room. Regardless of that though, yeah, it does feel a bit glossy. Saying that, it's an addictive watch. Once you're in, that's it. And I probably, just like you lot out there, had to know if anyone was going to survive this awful mess that they've got themselves in. This is Green Room.
1: Alright,
4: I can get you guys a solid gig. Matinee tomorrow, doors are one, you guys are on a three.
5: gentlemen
6: you're
1: trash things have gone south it won't end well you can't keep us here man you gotta let us go we're not keeping you you're just staying shoot who's left Blood and
2: get ready to run
1: here we go Ah! Careful now. This will be over soon, gentlemen. Ah!
2: Here is that letterboxed synopsis. There is one way in, there is no way out. A punk rock band becomes trapped in a secluded venue after finding a scene of violence. For what they saw, the band themselves become targets of violence from a gang of white power skinheads who want to eliminate all evidence of the crime. Now, as you heard at the very beginning of this episode and also every episode that I do... One of my jobs is I'm a singer in a band. I very much know the terrain that this film walks in. And yeah, I always leave something at the venue when we play live. I cannot tell you how many phone chargers or laptop chargers I've lost, razors, my brushes, (laughs) clothes, books, whatever. I've just misplaced them on tour. It is a hazard of the job. So when you come to Green Room, This simple premise is 100% believable from the off. This movie working is dependent on the decisions that are being made by the good guys and the bad guys. Adrenaline and desperation, they fuel this band. And the Nazis, they are meticulous because their leader makes it so. And everything leads to this question as a viewer. What would you do? How would you act? Well, to answer these questions and probably six more... We've got regular guest Howard Smith, singer with the band Acid Rain, speaking to me over Zoom to lay down some real truth bombs and some punk rock songs. Does Green Room work? And just for your information, we started off this conversation chatting all about Patreon. I think that's where we're about to jump in.
1: (laughs)
4: I wouldn't call myself a horror obsessive, I'm definitely a horror fan, but they're horror obsessives as well. So you've just you've got all of that, you've got all of that combined. But this is the beauty of things like this. You've arrived there, I don't say by accident, but you've arrived there via a cure via a curious route and it's the result of do you know what I mean whereas a lot of people sit at home and go "Ooh, what would people sign up and pay for
2: wrong that's the wrong fuck you've got to Mm. you've got to reverse engineer it I just I, I felt weird about it like for a whole year and then someone messaged me and said look just tell me what your PayPal is and I was just so flawed and so I, I don't know. I don't know. I had a little tear. I was just like, "Come on!" <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, so yeah. I was like, It's time to do the Patreon because I could be missing out, in here. and it means, I d- I don't know. It means that you know I don't have to worry about paying for this thing out of my own money every year when the fees come. Oh, up, absolutely. You know, it's done. Yeah. It.
4: I mean, this is and this is. I mean, my patrons are going to be watching this. Yeah. Hi guys, love you. Um and um and you know they they effectively. You know, subsidize the the podcast for everybody, but it's a win win because they get they get a ton more um, content than everybody else as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I I I love the model. I think it I think it's great. But um, but funnily enough, yeah, I remember hearing as soon as you mentioned Patreon, I just thought little light bulb went off and I thought I I bet that's going to be a real a real hit. And I'm pleased for you because the amount of hours and work that go into it. Um, is, is you know you've you, you can't be doing that for nothing for God's sake. It's you know, so just I mean purely for the sake of your marriage. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, <laughs> yes. yes, yeah. I'm way ahead of you here, mate. A thousand movies, right? Okay. There's there's definitely there's some payoff here. Yeah, yeah. She's getting a bag of ready's or
2: something. <laughs> well, yeah, something has to go. So yeah, I mean. <laughs> Fucking hell! Let's let's get into the film. I <laughs> love it. We're on <laughs> I'm, time. I'm, I'm, hey, mate, we don't have to go into it, uh, but we will. <laughs> we will. Um, yes, so, big time. Uh, I was really happy that you chose the green room. I was
4: really, I was really pleased um, to see it there. Really pleased to see it there. Not to be confused with the Oscar-winning green book, of course. <laughs> Pretty close. Uh, Oh, yeah, the tale of a black, well, actually, the tale of a black musician going around the deep south in the time of racism. Yeah, uh, maybe not.
2: No, only the mothers can tell them apart, isn't it? That's a tagline for them, too. Yes. So the way I've I've sort of sorted this out in a way that's just, I think only musicians could talk about it. Uh, So, excuse me if we're not going into the film a lot, but just I want to know. How close this is to begin with to like real band life. Because for me, the reason why I watched this for the first time and just fell in love with it instantly is because so much of it was right. So much yes. of it felt like, oh, this yeah. is me, Jesus. I take it same for you. Uh absolutely. Do
4: you know what my first, my first note is is low-key beginning, which which it is. It's really low-key. It's farts in Vans waking up and and like. Where we're going to siphon some petrol from, um, and and my second note is the band is one of the most genuine that I've I've ever seen, but but usually something gets sacrificed. So they've got everything right, and then they're like, you know, their favorite band uh, is like No Doubt or The yeah. Specials, and you're just like, oh,
1: no, that guy would not like that band, you fucking
4: idiots. But <laughs> but but with this everybody is spot on and it's movies like this when you when you when you know the music and you you know what it's like being in the band and you know the music they use in the film and everything else it's a times like where you go right whoever is directing this knows and and it, and for me and I'm sure it might have been the same for you within 5 minutes you can almost as a musician you can almost just sort of relax and go yeah yeah, it, this is going to be OK. They they know what they're doing, which which will come to it later. But there's some
2: just brilliant choices. Well, the director, Jeremy Sonia, right? He is foot deep in the trenches for the DC hardcore scene. So he knows where it's all coming from. And like when i look at this band on the stage and loading their own gear in i'm looking at like early footage that i've seen or early photos of the descendants like it really really hits home like i just feel like oh god that could be milo you know that could be someone walking or the band the teen idols i don't know if you know they turned into figazi eventually but it's sort of like really young punk stuff and i don't think they're a particularly fantastic band which is even, even better because then that makes it even more realistic you know yeah they are really good yeah. they're really tight they've been on tour but you know the songs are just punk songs they just throw away punk songs
4: well yeah and there's right, and but right. but what I love as well is that there's there's one there's one sort of and he's he's essentially our hero if you like but there's one member who's just you know he's up his own arse a bit he's a bit over Arty. You know, or you know, you know, no, we haven't got anything online. You know, no social media. No, no, nah, nah, you know that'll kill the band. And it's like, well, you know, nobody being at your gigs will kill your band, mate, a lot quicker. But he is, he's he's one of those. Do you know what I mean? And we've all we've all known somebody like that. And it's and it, and they're just like, that you know, no, that's that's just never going to work, you know. But they're they're artists, you know. In
2: 1999, my record label, uh, which is a German label, said to me. Do you want it CD, vinyl, uh, or just CD? And I said, just vinyl. Killed the band. Killed us completely. We couldn't shift anything. Uh, You know, so, yeah, that dickhead is me. Like, honestly, I am Uh up my own ass. I'm like, no, no, vinyl. That's where it is. So I got that guy. Uh, But, like, the thing that I loved so much and really was like, that's nailed it for me, I'm completely in, is when they're sitting down for the interview because we've been there <laughs> like that has been yeah. what we've put up with and you've got someone in that group like you just said just talking a bit of bollocks and you're like oh, rolling your eyes going oh god it's nailed it on the head just, just yeah situation
4: yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely and the, the weird thing is as well people listening to this will be like so is this like a music documentary? What the fuck is this on? Uh, is this another one of Paul's? Oh, you know, somebody scuffs their knee at the beginning, therefore it's a horror film. Yes. Um, you know, is it sci-fi corner? No, is it? Is it like musician corner? It's, but but it's, it's, it's a nasty little fucking movie. It's fucking nasty. It's nasty Slayer nasty. Slayer's perfect for the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Slipknot. That's too that's too organized, that's too corporate, that's too restrained. Slayer, it's just fucking nasty. And this movie is fucking nasty. It doesn't want you to like it. It doesn't want to be liked.
2: It's just fucking happening. You know what I mean? You walk into that venue with the band, right? And I just imagine them lifting their feet up and it's sticky. And yeah, you know, yeah. like they look at the audience. I've been there before, play I played East Germany. And it was just a bunch of skins. And I was like, what the fuck have we walked into here? And your instinct is flee. Uh, And yet, you know, I'm going to get a kick in if I leave right now. So you just do it. Tail between your legs and (laughs) and you leave afterwards. This band, when they get caught out, and this is where the movie really kicks off, this is a real important question for this film working, is the choices that are made, I think, are where this film lives. because. If you don't believe that that choice would happen, then the film falls apart. And I think that's the same yeah. for the skinheads. I think it's the same for for the band. Uh, are you on that same camp? Would you choose to do the exact same thing? Would you end up in that situation? Just to rewind a bit, because you, you you started by saying just walking into the venue.
4: They, they have to take the gig. They don't have any other gigs available. This is the gig they are going to do. Now... They are kind of told that they're maybe that the audience is like a, a little to the right, and then they turn up and they are all the way over to the right. They're clearly fucking skins, right? And what I love is that our our band that you know that we're we're following, they just go um they go right okay. Why don't we ask, why don't we open the set with Nazi punks fuck off by the Dead Kennedys? And I mean it's just it is G and it and it, the, the actual version. The actual version is, is brilliant because it's sloppy, but it's not so sloppy to be caricatured and it's not well played enough to be like, they're not playing that. They genuinely look like they're playing it and they sound like they're playing it because it's a bit all over the place, yes. but it absolutely works. I love the reaction. I love the reaction of the, of the skins as well. You just sort of stand there and just go like, eh, eh, fuck you really, you know? that's and then but they don't attack them and they start playing another song it's like the skins have gone fair fucks you know they've come on here they've told us to fuck off out the gate that's brave um and now they're just going to play some tunes fair enough we'll give them a chance that doesn't
2: last very long but hey you know (laughs) okay well if i was that that in that audience and i felt that way i would like have it on my list like I'll give them a kick in afterwards, you know. I'm here to get drunk with my mates or whatever. They're not going to get away with that, not on my turf. But yeah. again, it's pretty realistic the fact that they're looking and they're considering what to do, and then just like, oh, fuck it, all right, let them get away with that one. Don't yeah. push it, lads. And yeah, they didn't. Yeah. And again, I've not I've not played to a Nazi audience before. I can't imagine either. what it's like. <laughs> I can't what you what you
4: haven't played any Nazi rallies, Paul? Oh, no, tear no. me! <laughs> you have missed out.
2: I, <laughs> I, you know, you're a few decades too late for that, mate. But uh, this stuff exists. We've all seen it on documentaries. We all see. Yes. We all know these bands exist, and we all laugh when someone gets uh, seriously injured or they get ripped off by a label or someone like that because you know they deserve it. They're the ones that deserve it. They're yeah. Cunts. But at the same time, these people exist. So this, there's so much about this that it feels real. I'm going back to the question. Would yeah. you do what they do? Um, what, as in would I open with Nazi punks fuck off? No, no, beyond that. So you're in the room. Right. You've spotted that dead body. Um, right okay just all you want to do is get your charge back
4: yeah I I think it's I think it's quite a genuine reaction as well because as a rule musicians are artists slash you know lovers not fighters so so the instinct fight or flight the instinct is flight 99.9% of the time it is flight unless you're on stage and emboldened by adrenaline in which case you rock fucking hard but you know, so, yeah, I, I absolutely get it. I can honestly say I wish I was I wish I was more of a hero, but I would I would be that guy going, just get the mobile charger. Let's get the fuck out of here, dudes. We didn't see a thing. See you later. Goodbye. Sorry about the Nazi punks thing. ta <laughs> And just fuck off. And then on, and we're in the van and other members are going, should we ring the police? I would get their phones, throw them out the window. <laughs> and I just, fuck off. We were never there. We never played the gig. Nothing happened. Don't. I don't know. Yeah. Just forget it. Just remove the day from your diaries. Whatever. You know. Um, yeah. Fair so. fucks. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. I'm I would. In i just hairy situations, but like that would do it. I think I'm with yeah. you there, mate. I think there's yeah. no way. <laughs> it made me cry. I love that. Uh, yeah. I, I just think right when as soon as Patrick Stewart emerges that's when you know yes. oh dear oh dear there's no escape yeah.
4: yeah as soon as jean luc picard of the uh, starship enterprise arrives yeah um uh, yeah as soon as uh, as soon as he turns up you're just like oh right and and i have to say i didn't know he was in it when i first watched it wow so that, apologies okay. apologies for ruining it for you if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it uh yet but i didn't know he was in it because I always go out of my way to know nothing about a movie that I want to see, which is, you know, fraught with danger. But when he arrives, because uh, up to that point, I'm just like, oh, this is really well done. I'm really feeling it. This is kind of like, this is the movie equivalent of a really good demo. You know, it's like, it's, it's fucking genuine as fuck. It's, it's, it's brilliant, you know? And then Patrick Stewart arrives and he go, fuck me, they've only got Rick Rubin in to produce this. It. You know, it's like, oh, wow. Right. Okay. And all of a sudden, just the the gravity that he brings to the role and to the fact that you pretty much haven't recognised anybody at this point. I mean, Anton Yeltsin, yes, unfortunately, due to his death, is a lot more famous than he probably would have been. But you don't really kind of know anyone. And then he rocks up and you're just like, oh, right. Okay. I pegged this movie wrong. This is clearly a bit more heavy hitting than I realized. And he arrives, and just prior to his arrival, actually, um, and before everything kicks off, when they're, when they're all in like in the back corridors, not sure what's going on.
1: Yeah.
4: And and the music choice of Slayer's war ensemble about about war about to be break out. One, two, Could not be more perfect, and so there's musical clues in there. If you you know, if you know the genres and stuff, there there is there's music there's musical cues all over the place. But that was just brilliant for me. And then when Patrick Stewart turns up and he tries to play the sort of the, the the Santa kind of figure, doesn't he? He tries to play the sort of the voice of reason, and we're going we're going to sort all of this out. And the weird thing is. I remember the first time I watched it. You just, just, just do not believe him for a
1: second. Yes,
2: correct. <laughs> I've watched a lot of Star Trek. I know that this guy can just let rip. And when he does, you know, he's a real force to be reckoned with. But he's so understated in this role. Uh, yes. And there was some criticism as well in a couple of the reviews that says he that he wasn't utilised well enough. I disagree. I feel that absolutely him holding back. It almost feels regal. He's the king of this whole community. You're spot on there. That's a re- that's a lovely way of putting it
4: as well. It's, it's almost like regal. And also, I think whoever who would ever criticize that is purely, you know, as with most reviews, it's not about the movie, it's about what you have brought to the movie. It's about, you know, it's your preconceptions, your expectations, and then the review comes out the other end. So the movie goes into you, it's filtered through you, and then comes out, then the review comes out of you about what you saw. Well, I saw a different movie. And I think if he'd been, if he'd been in there grandstanding, he would have stood out like a sore thumb. It would have been like, what's the Hollywood actor doing in the middle of this gritty, earthy movie? You know, he play, he plays it. Absolutely spot on. I, I'm and I know I'm jumping ahead here a bit, but I love the whole red laces thing. I just think that's just that's just different class. And again, that comes from somebody that comes from a director who knows the hardcore scene and you know knows the significance of uh, uh, of the colors of laces and stuff like that. It's
2: just yeah, it's fucking awesome. Agreed. Like that methodical attention to detail from scene one, where they're in the van. To, to the very end of how someone would react in a, a shoot-off when they're not used to being in, even holding a gun, you know, any anything yeah. like that. It, it's so oddly compelling to watch because I feel like these people are me and this is me in this pretend situation and this is probably how I would react. I don't think I yeah. would make it, <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah, I, don't no. I would get out of the room.
4: Totally agree. Totally agree. I was funny enough. I was I was thinking when you were, you know, you talking about um, the the regal performance, and everything It's like when you the, the whole movie. I mean, I rewatched it, obviously, before, you know, before doing this and, and I watched it not I watched it to enjoy it, obviously, but with a critical eye as well. And what came away from it for me was that, you know what? This there's nothing in this movie where you go, oh, fuck off. Oh, that's not going to, oh, that wouldn't happen. No, that wouldn't, oh, that's not going to, it's like, no, no, it's the other way. It's like, no, 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 no. This is going to make you go, oh, fuck off. As in I can't look as in that's not very nice. And the way the whole thing unfolds is the pacing is perfect, but it's, it's, it's real. It's realistic. When the guy who's killed the girl moves her by dragging the weapon that is stuck in her eye socket and he just moves the whole body by pulling her like that. That comes out of nowhere because that's the first sort of bit of gore you've seen. Apart from you've seen there's a girl on the floor and there's something stuck in her eye, but you don't, the camera doesn't linger. And then, so when this guy does that and just drags her across the floor like a carcass, it's like, whoa, what the, whoa, all right, now I've got, oh... Like if they're willing to do that, if they're willing to show me that, what else am I going to get shown? And even the bits later on, you know, with with the dogs and with the, they're trying to get out, and, I'd like, yeah, you know, they, you're thinking, oh, you know, how many people are going to survive? And they they get down low on numbers pretty bloody quick. You know, there's there's, there's no hanging around, um, and. Um, but but also I have to I have to rewind because I'll kill myself if I don't mention this and that is that earlier I think you got penises and pistols mixed up because you described the shootout as a shoot off um, <laughs> and, and you know, I, I've got to be honest you know one happens in porn and one happens in other cinema <laughs> it's definitely a shootout
2: um, hey, I'll, I'll take both come on <laughs> either, either way either way is good. Bloody hell. Um, Right. We've got to mention him because he's no longer with us. uh, And that's why most people will recognise that name. But I knew him from a film before called The Only Lovers Left Alive, something like that. Um, God, I haven't seen it for an age. It's a vampire film. Again, I think he was a musician in that. And I also obviously from the Star Trek. But I don't really know him uh, apart, apart from that. And the Star Trek role isn't huge. So really, I can only judge Anton in this. And I I just think, wow, if he was more of a a genre player, so I would watch much more of him just by happenstance, I think he'd be one of my favourites. Because as as we've said in this, he's very convincing. It's very satisfying watching him do what we would do. Uh, I know that he was taught just for four weeks in total how to play the instruments that he was playing, how to act like he's in a punk band, and just that everything from where, how you would sit in a van to how you yeah. would throw the strap behind your guitar so that the the chord doesn't come out. You know, everything from that, those little details. And he knocks it out of the park. I'm completely convinced that that's, this guy's my mate. So, yeah. yeah, what do you think of him in this? Do you think it's something special? Uh, no, I, I do. I do. Because
4: again, the key to it is, is, um, it's understated. You know, it's played, it's just, it's played for real. There's a, there's a, there's a brilliant line um, towards the end of the film. So rather than chronologically going through the whole movie, sure. but there's a brilliant line where um, towards the end, they, they go up, they go up to, to, to find the, the remaining people who've, you know, been attacking them. And basically the owner of a dog that has like eaten a fair few people, and also uh, Patrick Stewart as well, who's the leader of all of this. And it's it's Anton Yelchin, our guy, and one of the girls, and they're kind of they're walking up the path and they see what's going on. And he's saying like, "Oh, you know, they're they're making it look like a, you know, like we like, like we ran out of gas and they're making it all look like an accident." Yeah. And and she just she just fucking shoots the dog owner dead and Anton Yeltson's I, I even wrote it down because I thought it's such a great line and it's and he's and it's delivery as well. And she shoots him dead and he goes uh so we're doing that right <laughs> and it's just like fuck right but it's 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 such a great it, I you know don't focus on this one line of dialogue but it's such a it's such a great expression because after everything they've been through Clearly, she has gone completely savage, and he has still got a modicum of decency left in him. That and she was like, "Well, what did you think?" And he was like, "Well, I don't know. I'm just going to like stop them setting this up. <laughs> you know, I was like, maybe you know, just just stop them." And and he was like, and she's like, "Nah, you know, nah, they got to go."
2: I think he's
4: um, as amazed as we are that he's made yes. it that far. Yeah yeah but that's and, and that's a, a particular favorite line of mine of his in the movie but in general i think it's great performance and it's one of those performances where if you didn't know who he was as the credits roll you grab your phone you open the imdb app yeah. you you put his name in and you find out that he's dead and you find out how he died and that makes that i mean because that's what happened to me after this movie i didn't know and watched the movie went to see him saw that he was dead read read how he died i already felt a bit washed out by the movie as in like wow, right okay that's not exactly what i was expecting that was like way more um intense and way more brooding and way more gruesome than i was expecting but then real life comes and kicks you in the fucking balls at the end of the movie and says, oh, if you thought that was gruesome, check out how he fucking died, which okay. is just hideous. Absolutely hideous. But some good has come out of it because of a uh, particular car manufacturers uh, uh, was forced to, um, to change a part in their vehicle because Anton Yeltsin was not the only person crushed to death by his own four by four due to a, a a faulty or weak handbrake. And he did and he didn't die instantly. He was crushed against a, a gatepost by his own vehicle and he died slowly crushed against that post. And it's just Dude. It. I didn't I know. know
2: that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh I know how he died, but I didn't know how he died. That's all right. Yeah. It, absolutely horrible. And his
4: parents um campaigned in the wake of his death. To bring about changes in laws and force the car manufacturers to 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 address the issue because he wasn't he wasn't the only person who died like that. And um yeah, just an a, a a young man with an incredible talent, his whole career, his whole life in front of him. Right. Um and and just brutally ended. And um uh, and that kind of really sort of made the movie stick with me even more. And it made me re-watch it fairly quickly I mean I, I tend not to re-watch things you know very quickly I want to let them disappear out of my head and then come back to them fresh but Green Green Room I found myself coming back to it within a fortnight and, and just kind of really really appreciating it all over again and watching it again for this just absolutely loved it and it's just there's you know there's not there's not a bit there's not a a single ounce of fat on it i mean it is it is sheared to the bone for want of a better expression it's such a tight movie you know it's like in out 90 minutes no fucking about just yeah It's, it's
2: it's it's an awesome movie it's so heavy that it does take a minute just to like let those credits roll stay off your phone and just have a think (laughs) because fuck what have I just seen I think it begins with that heaviness it reminds me of a film actually like Straw Dogs or something like that from the 70s where it's just this oppressive feel when it finishes that you don't want to do anything else for a little while afterwards yeah you could sort of say oh there's a happy ending at this film sort of uh, you know (laughs) but at the same time like you've you think back oh what did I enjoy about that film oh god that violence there that dog attack there the arm was hanging off you know all these oh, things. it's
4: his his arm his arm when they get when they when it gets macheted and they're like and they gaffer taping it up it's just oh, oh that is wince inducing that really is just i'll tell you something else as well i i don't want to give it away for people who haven't seen it but when when they decide to break, when the, the guys outside decide to break through the doors into the dressing room and get to the final two, and they come in and they've they've had a discussion that they're just gonna go nuts. And one of them is hiding. And when they appear, I'm just thinking the ring. That's it, it, it's, it, it happened to me at the time. It's happened to me on every rewatch and it caught me by surprise again this time. I was just like, oh God, that still does my head in it's uh yeah that that arm and i also love the i also love the um the innocent way when they've got the gun with bullets and they are saying, look give us the gun it's an unregistered gun give us the gun and we'll let you go we just want the gun and i just love the the innocent naive way he says okay you can have the gun but we're going to keep the bullets was, yeah yeah because of yeah. course they won't have any bullets mate. Right? yeah yeah that, you probably that's probably not a good idea do
2: that handshakes out yeah yeah exactly yeah There you (laughs) go never saw a thing but do you know what i'm watching it again i still think to this to this day and this i think it's my fourth watch now but i think i would at that point when i hear patrick stewart trying to reason things um i would have to take him at his word because i would just be like there's no other way i'm getting out of this apart from hopefully they won't kill me you
4: know? I'd, I'd be thinking, in my probably naive, panicky brain, I'd be thinking, oh, someone's dad's here. Everything's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an adult has arrived. It'll be okay. He's called the police. He says he's called the police. He, I mean, he wouldn't say he's called the police if he hasn't called the police, but no of course he's called the police. So what adults do. He's called the police. It's all be sorted. yeah. <laughs> The subplot as well as to, you know, the subplot as is to, is to as to why the girl died in the first place. And, and it's like there's just, you know, there's depth to it. And there's also a running, you know, your desert island band question as well, which which sometimes th- it feels like, you know, a director has literally got a crowbar and gone like, get in there, you, you fucking amusing comedy device, you get in there. And it's just like, no, it's, it just feels wrong there. But this it just works really smoothly and right at the end of the movie, it comes back and the, and the, and there, and there is, and Antony Olsen delivers the perfect answer to the question. And I just thought, yeah, it, it's, it is, it's, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. I mean, if you, if you're a, if you're a fan of horror movies, if, I mean, because I, I definitely think, you know, it's, it's, is it a horror? Um, if I went through that, I would say that's pretty horrific, which counts as a horror. There's low, and, and, i mean it's you know it's shot it's shot like a like a horror i mean it never backs away it never backs down and there's nothing there's nothing nice in this film you know so if you're listening to this or watching it um if you listen to it and you haven't seen it already you know just uh, maybe have a look at some of your life choices um, it's it's just it's a beauty it really is 90 minutes in and out and yeah if you've ever wanted to see patrick stewart as the uh as the king of a bunch of skinheads then now's your chance
2: everyone has wanted that and as a final thought i was already in a horror movie when they had to siphon some petrol because that that is gnarly there's a lot that could potentially yeah. go wrong there it's not yeah. good i was in a horror movie then so you know it, it
4: yeah it's fair got- enough well, I mean, it starts out as well. I mean, they're they're penniless, they've got no, they've got no gig to play, they they have to they have to siphon petrol, they have to play a gig they know is going to be a bit wonky. It turns up it's not wonky, it's fallen over. And, and and literally from the minute they wake up, this day goes to shit. It's just, it's like, but again, an accurate representation of what it's like being in a band. Do you know what? Their day is shit to begin with. Their day ends horrifically with horrendous tragedy. But that for that little moment they're on stage, everything's all right. And that really that, that, well. that couldn't be more perfect about you know about being in a band. Like, yeah, the 23 hours of the day around the performance, shit. The one hour, worth it.
2: I think I'd missed all that subtext, but yeah, you're you're quite right. <laughs>
1: I go to work, I hate my job The bossy says, man, you're such a sloth I'm always broke, and I'm alone I ask myself, what have I been got?
2: I the Aint Rights. That is the name that the band have taken that are in this film, and. It looks totally realistic on stage. It looks as good, if not better, than most actual bands because it's professionally filmed, it's got amazing lighting, some really quick cuts. Any punk rock band's going to kill for that sort of thing. And this is really interesting. As far as all information and sources that I've found tell me, the actual actors learn their craft So, Joe Cole on drums, he was taught by Portland's finest Lisa Schoenberg. Yelchin and Shawkat, they were taught by punk rocker Hutch Harris, who by day plays in his band The Thermals. And singer, vocalist, matey boy, he just rocked up, having all the skills built into his head already. And what is so good is that the Ain't Right's, they're nothing special. They are a nothing special punk rock band, but... Again, how this film works so well for me is that they're really tight. It looks like they've been on the road for ages. They really know their stuff. They are really snappy, and if I'm going to be honest with you, it puts them already heads and tails above the majority of the aspiring DIY punk rockers out there. It doesn't take much. And where can you find this movie? Well, in the USA, you can stream this for free, but only if you've got a subscription with Fubo, Showtime, Canopy, DirecTV, Spectrum on Demand. Those. (laughs) In the UK, it's only free on Virgin TV Go. And if you're after a hard copy, it's Blu-ray is out there. It's very good value for money. It's very cheap, but there hasn't been a release stacked with extras on yet. And this one really deserves it. I would watch hours upon hours of that stuff. As for podcasts, the Blood Buddies podcast, they did an hour-long episode on Green Room back in April 2020. And for a funnier take, maybe go to Horrified Chicken podcast. They did their chat on it back in June 2017. And there we go. And once again, massive thank you to H. Howard Smith from Acid Rain. And that's it. That is Green Room. At number two in my chart for 2016, we have a 10 out of 10 movie. In my mind, I could want nothing more from a film. What Robert Eggers has done here is to achieve exactly what his film set out to do. From the casting, to the set designers, to the editing, to the scoring, to the costumes, to the location scouting, etc, etc. The end results here are flawless. He has clearly assembled a team that has delivered on every level. And to achieve a work of art like this and have no elements let you down at all, it's just mind-boggling. Now, I understand this is my thoughts and mine alone, but I think this is a movie that is going to be remembered in future decades in the same way that the likes of The Blair Witch or The Shining or The Exorcist or Psycho, whatever, whatever they are, it will be remembered in the same way. This is the perfect horror film. This is The Witch. What went we out into this wilderness to find?
1: Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses.
2: For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray.
1: O God, my Lord, I now begin. Oh help me and I'll leave my sin. For I repentant now shall be, from
5: evil I will turn to thee. None ever shall destroy my faith, for I repentant now shall be. O God, my Lord, I now begin. I'll help me and I'll leave my sin. For I repentant now shall be, from evil I will turn to thee.
1: leave the
2: report. And here is your letterboxed synopsis. Evil takes many forms. In 1630s New England, William and Catherine lead a devout Christian life with five children. Homesteading on the edge of an impassable wilderness and exiled from their settlement when William defies the local church. When their newborn son vanishes and crops mysteriously fail, the family turns on one another. Right, so let's get stuck in. We last had Becky Dark on the show to chat with us about a couple of bangers from 1982. We did Basket Case and Poltergeist. We also went pretty deep on Hereditary for the 2018 Big Hitter episode. And here she is once again, this time talking to us about the Robert Eggers masterpiece, The Witch. But before we chat about The Witch... I wanted to know just a little bit more about the Stop Animation Master Ray Harryhausen exhibition. Becky played a small but awesome part in this. And after that chat, what we're going to do is we're going to have a little word here about the rather delicious soundtrack scored by Mark Corvin as well. But right now though, The Witch. As I, as I usually do, um, I'm, I'm stalking you. And then I find <laughs> that you're doing this Harry Harryhausen thing and uh-huh. you get to meet one of my heroes uh, as well and have a chat and everything. And this is like, wow, okay, can you tell the audience about it? Please tell us.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely, like, mind-blowing that I even got to take apart. part. In this, so like you're not the first person to be surprised by it. I was the first person to be surprised by it. Basically, the National Galleries of Scotland have had a an exhibition, um, in I think it's uh, the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art about Ray house It's called Titan of Cinema, and it's been going on um, since last year. And it was designed to be, so they've been working um, in partnership with the Ray Harryhausen Foundation and Trust. And um, it was designed to be this huge um, sort of international event. And I know that they had interest from all around the world of people coming over to see it. And then COVID happened. So they had to really think on their feet. And they're very lucky because they've got an amazing team behind them. Um, But they've done so much work over the last couple of years creating a virtual exhibition experience where you can uh, pay like £10 or something and you literally like you get it's almost like one of these augmented reality things so you get to kind of walk through the exhibition um and then there's sort of extra stuff that they like layer on top of it to kind of enhance the experience Amazing. um so you are able like it, it's been sort of opened and then closed and opened and then closed because of like the various lockdowns and stuff and um, people have been able to go and see it in person but just nowhere near the numbers that they'd obviously planned for or right. wanted so some of the other stuff that they've done is just like online content so um the way that I initially got in touch with them was when I worked with them on a video essay about uh, Harryhausen's work and about my kind of nostalgia I've always been a fan ever since I was a kid um so my nostalgia of watching films like the seventh voyage of Sinbad and the golden voyage of Sinbad and um Clash of the Titans and Jason and the Argonauts like um on sort of rainy uh bank holiday Mondays when I was a child and so I worked with Mike Munzer who I know you know um, from The Evolution of Horror and he produced it and edited it and I wrote it and voiced it and we um, basically did that for the galleries and that was kind of put out um, on their uh, YouTube channel and then they've been doing this series of talks with kind of uh, people who have been involved with Harryhausen over the years. So some people who um, like starred in the films back in the day and various um, other kind of uh, people who were just like involved. So they might be involved with the foundation or etc. cetera. Um, and then the final one, the final um, kind of live chat with these super fans was with Mark Gatiss and Jeremy Dyson from uh, League of Gentlemen and because I already had this relationship with the galleries through the essay and um, because I think like from talking to them and just realizing that we had quite a lot of similar interests um, my contact up there was like you like the League of Gentlemen right I was like yeah why he was like well I've got this thing and so yeah I mean after my I sort of picked my jaw up off the floor and realized (laughs) that I was going to be able to talk to two members of the League of Gentlemen icons about Ray Harryhausen icon. So yeah, we did uh, like an hour's chat and like kind of interactive so the audience were able to ask questions either in advance or they were sort of submitting questions like during um the chat and we showed lots of clips of Harryhausen's films and mark and jeremy were able to kind of talk of like talk kind of over the clips and talk wow. through them and talk about the experience the influence that um harry Housen's films have had on their work and like if you've seen um the league of gentlemen's apocalypse the feature length yeah. um the film that they did there's like stop motion sequences in there that are directly influenced from um some of Harry Harryhausen's monsters so they were able to kind of talk through that and yeah it was just it was amazing it was like amazing for me and um I think uh, from what we've gotten from the feedback um, it was very well received and I think it was just really like special for audiences to hear obviously like Mark and Jeremy these amazing creative minds talking about um how yeah somebody as special as harry Housen has been kind of influencing their work so it was amazing yeah it was great
2: and has it been documented so uh, people just like myself that missed it do we uh, is there are we able to find this somewhere or is it kaput after the 20th
3: no, it's it was recorded, thank goodness, um, so I am hoping to have a copy of it, you know, for sort of portfolio reasons and stuff. Um, I know that people who signed up for the uh, exhibition, like Experience, where you could get all of the stuff i know that they've been able to access it after the fact um but as i say as with our video essay um it that's been up on the um, national galleries of scotland youtube channel so i assume i don't know for sure but i assume that at some point in future it will go up onto the channel so people can watch it once the exhibition has finished
2: i was doing an interview that night so i didn't do it but I selfishly just treated myself uh, to a Blu-ray, so I went on Amazon instead. I thought, "Oh, this is this will do." Uh, so I went on Amazon because I'd never seen Clash of the Titans. Um, oh, yeah, and I'm I'm still not. It's still in its wrapping downstairs. <laughs> but I I was ticking through all the ones that I'd seen, and it was the only one I haven't seen from this long list uh, on Wikipedia. And I was like, that "How have I missed that?"
3: Because yeah that is really I mean it was it was Harryhausen's last film so I think it's 81 and it's it, it's I mean it's definitely one that I was more familiar with because it was one that was on telly a lot when I was a kid so with like Bubo the mechanical owl and you've got like Calibus and stuff um just again like really iconic um, and of course you get like Pegasus and Medusa. There's this incredible sequence um, with Perseus uh in in Medusa's lair. So it's like it is slightly um you can tell it's that kind of late 70s, early 80s production. It's a bit glossier and maybe like a little bit cheesier than Love some it. of his earlier work. Um but I mean I it's got a really special place in my heart and it's got some really incredible sequences that um harry designed and animated so in for a treat my friend <laughs> I,
2: can't, I can't i can't wait honestly i've got this stack that i have to do in order and 81 is coming up so yeah so it's in amongst that stack Amazing. so right okay uh, another thing with uh, just need to know so mark gatis he for me introduced me to a world of horror that I wasn't aware of I was sort of just Mm. into the commercial stuff I wasn't really digging underground or going back in the past and those I think it was three documentaries that he did uh, maybe 10 years ago or something like that and I remember just being glued to it and writing lists down he was a real big influence for me did you get a chance to have like afterwards just a little talk with them or anything like that or was it like all business 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 it was
3: I mean they were Lovely they, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, just being generally nice people and very engaged and kind of just interested in the whole event, they were lovely, but they are also extremely busy. So um, we had like a couple of um, pre-meetings where it was like you'd sort of jump on, make sure that everybody's um, Wi-Fi worked and, you know, sort of trying to troubleshoot all of the tech stuff ahead of the night. Um, But even like Mark wasn't even able to like attend those because I think his schedule is just mental. So, no, it was lit. Literally like an hour of um, fun and hijinks. And then at the end of it, we just sort of said our goodbyes. But um, like I say, I mean, they were just an absolute delight, both of them.
2: And uh, at the end of it, did you have a stiff drink? <laughs> just like, Oh, my <laughs> God, I got through that.
3: So uh, yes, is the short answer. <laughs> um, my husband was amazing. He was like, he was so supportive. And, you know, I think he deserves a bit of a shout out because some, you know, Some blokes can be a bit funny about um, this sort of thing. Like if their other half has, you know, something sort of successful... Um, or something that they're like excited about some blokes who I have encountered can be a bit sort of dismissive or like a bit sort of threatened by it or whatever my husband was so adorable he was like (laughs) he like cooked dinner so that I didn't have to worry I mean he like we share it anyway but he was like he planned ahead of time he was like right you don't have to worry about food I'm gonna cook dinner he went to the shop first and like got me a beer like one beer beforehand so that I like wasn't drunk for the recording but he was like I thought you might like like a drink before i was like you are literally the most thoughtful man because <laughs> i've just been sitting here for the last hour thinking should i pop to the shop and get myself one beer um and then we had uh, he basically made spag bol and we had a bottle of wine afterwards and a right celebration and in fact we were sat there at the dinner table eating our pasta and i was like because i still haven't seen the show i haven't been up to edinburgh <laughs> oh, wow, to okay. see the show even though i've been involved sort of you know with these project bits like for over a year now i think um but there's been a pandemic on and you know i've been you know life yeah. stuff so i haven't had a chance and we're sat there after and i'm like riding this wave of kind of excitement and like you know that went really well and this sort of uh this like having spoken so much about the exhibition that night and I was like I can't believe it's due to finish in like three weeks and I'm not going to have seen it this is actually absurd so we were literally sat there at the table like on our phones and he's texting our friend who lives in Edinburgh and I'm looking up train times and all that kind of thing <laughs> and we like book we basically booked trains while we were eating our dinner um but I was just saying to you before we started recording the um the there's like major weather warnings and this is the last so this yeah. coming weekend as we're recording is the last weekend that the exhibition is open for visitors and um it's possible and I, honestly i will weep it is possible that the uh the the crazy winds and snowstorms and stuff are going to get in the way but fingers crossed it will be fine
2: amazing uh, i i'm <laughs> so i'm so happy for you that it all went so oh, thanks, well Paul. i really am um i was uh, to be honest absolutely a thousand percent jealous like I, i've you know sometimes <laughs> you're like oh like isn't Becky doing well or isn't whoever doing well like that's so good it's really good to see and then afterwards you're just thinking oh there are millions of things that would be running through my head also I wouldn't have been able to I've been terrified just because (laughs) to, to fuck things up potentially um in, in that oh, live was, setting trust,
3: trust me my <laughs> friend I was I was full shitting myself beforehand yeah but I managed to like pull it together it was that one beer it was that one beer that my husband went to the shops to get me specially I think gave me the Dutch courage I needed to get through but yeah no it's, it was good I was very happy with it and um, I think Yeah, like I say, it got received quite well. So um, hopefully, you never know, I might get some more similar stuff. Because if I could get to talk to more idols about other idols, I'd be over the moon. Too right. Yeah, too right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I deal with that all the time, speaking with the likes of yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Boom!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, we've gone on way too long about this. Because we're we're talking about the Vavitch or the Witch. First of all, got to know how you like to say it
3: so I say witch right um, because I I think it's maybe just like stylistic on the posters for but uh I like it but yes I say witch
2: good I'm glad because because you're a human
3: <laughs> yeah yeah because for isn't a word that's why <laughs> Correct.
2: well I mean I'm so glad you picked it out because it gave me an excuse to rewatch, and I upped it to my uh my 10 out of 10 rating that i just i couldn't fault it you know i watched it with a critical eye and i couldn't i couldn't see anything wrong with it and i noticed your score isn't quite as high so why the witch why why is it a film that you chose out of all these 2016 ones although it did come out i think in festivals in 15
3: yeah yeah um, i think i've got it down as 15 when it comes to horror I might have said this before so excuse me if I'm repeating myself but I for a film to kind of like really be up there for me I like it to really shit me up and that is why there are films like um I think in fact we probably I probably have said this because we've talked spoken about Hereditary and that is one of those right. films that shits me up um The Blair Witch Project Texas Chainsaw Massacre the exorcist like these are films that I come away from them feeling like raw and um, a bit sort of exposed and a bit shaken by what I've just experienced but all of that stuff just heightens the experience for me like that's what I want I can enjoy other horror films a lot if they don't get that like visceral reaction from me but really if it's going to kind of hit that peak for me I want it to really mess with me yes. and The Witch is really fucking scary Um and I remember having, I remember watching the trailer and thinking <laughs> I'm like genuinely scared <laughs> to watch this movie just from the trailer and then I watched it, I've seen it I think three times now, Um like rewatching watching it Um, today just for our chat I think I'd seen it twice before it doesn't like there are still moments and it's like that that like third act where it just all ramps up it really sort of comes it really comes at you um quite relentlessly um and yeah it just it still really messes with me and I respect that
2: I think it is down to... Because there are moments here in this film where things settle down. But the, the score, Mark Corvin's score, won't let mm. you settle down. It's just bubbling mm. underneath you. And you're like, oh, God, I feel ill watching this. This is so creepy. But there's just two kids walking hand in hand having a dance sort of thing. And yet it's terrifying. And, you know, you're like, oh, I don't like it. And you're on edge all the time. And I noticed on this uh, most recent watch... Uh, again, just like you, the third watch being yesterday, it was. As soon as they enter the woods, the music changes. No matter what they're doing in the woods, the music all of a sudden sounds like you can hear like a, a crackling of a radio or something in the background, mm. like a, a real weird, like just underneath yeah. the whole and thing.
3: It seems to like um, muffle as well. Like it, like you're in amongst the trees with them. Like it's sort of that like claustroph- it like makes you feel claustrophobic as well
2: it's it's so clever I, I really I, I I just really loved it there was a, the final mm-hmm. thing that just went oh it's a 10 out of 10 I can't fault it well that's a lie I sort of can but I will get there right okay so I think I want to talk about our favourite bits in the film. I think everyone has seen this film. I looked at the amount of people that have sort of ticked it as watched on Letterboxd, and it was massive. Mm. So it, mm. spoilers don't really matter with, with this one. But I'd like to talk about the different members of the cast, but I think we can do it in the same time as just talking about our favourite bits uh, of the film. So I personally just want to... that The star for me is Charlie, who plays Black Phillip. I, I, I love that guy. <laughs> right
3: <laughs> so i've i've always loved goats um you get these little viral videos about like baby goats like new baby goat just dropped and there's like this tiny little baby goat and it might be standing on the back of a dog or something it's like oh aren't they cute and then you get like those fainting goats which are always like excellent comedy value because they get right. startled and then they like all fall over like ha 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 goats aren't they adorable aren't they cute and then you get black philip it's like no they are <laughs> fucking terrifying <laughs> and they will mess you
2: up the first time i watched it i didn't notice uh, even, even though it was mentioned i didn't notice any of the black philip stuff didn't it i was too busy focusing on the the language of the film the dialect and yeah uh, like the way everything was working from the sets to the clothes to just oh, i'm getting in the feel of it you know and it wasn't till my second watch where i'm just like wow what a character and it's a goat <laughs> You know, this whole film is based around, around this goat. The film still sort of flawlessly works. The way the kids, I think, watching it yesterday, that the kids, and it's not clear, but I was wondering if you feel the same, that the kids have been influenced by that goat from the off. Although there's sometimes when they're sort of cool and you just think, oh, actually, they've not been. It sort of lulls you. But those some of the nursery rhymes can only be taught by Black Philip. Really oh, weird. yeah,
3: no, I'm, I am th- I think you're right. I'm definitely under the impression that the twins are fully, like, in with him from the off. Right. Because um, it is quite early that Thomason sort of just says to them something. And like you say, like, when you first watch it, you wouldn't really pick up on, on it. But then when you rewatch, she says to them, like, quite early in the film, like, oh, you and that goat or something like that. Or you're, you know, you're always playing with that goat or, you know. And it's like, yeah, they they are spending an unnatural amount of time with this goat. (laughs) Those fucking twins. They are so creepy and annoying and, like, just wrong. They're just, like, wrong.
2: (laughs) Wrong. I like that. It's a good description. Well, they're such good actors. I don't know... If it was like, oh, let's just do this take again until we get it, until we get it, or they're pretty quick off the mark. But mm. again, I uh, with kids in films, I like it when they mess up, I like it when they're rubbish, I like it when they're great. I just love kids in film now. Uh, <laughs> and but these are so good, so good, these twins. And the bit that really gets me with them is when they when when it's all kicked off and they've just blacked out, sort of thing, they're both mm. lying there. And that's it. And then you're thinking, right, well, it is them all along then, is it?
3: Yeah. What's happened yeah. here? So, oh. and because, because one of the things, one of, and I, I picked this up from a few films and stuff I read, one of the like tests that sort of witch finder generals and um, people in Salem and stuff used to use to figure out if someone was a witch um, was to ask them to, um, recite the lord's prayer because if you're if you're sort of in league with the devil you're not be you're not meant to be able to say it and so that bit in the attic obviously they can't say their prayer and so if you if you know that and certainly to their parents that would be really obvious as this sign that they are like in the thrall of the devil or that, you know, they're witches. Um, but it's so interesting the way that poor Thomason literally can't do anything right. And I think it's because essentially she's a teenage girl. She's a girl who is just coming into womanhood um, and within kind of sus- wider society, the patriarchal society, the religious, um, like that, like her family are so pious um, and like, under her mum's sort of really watchful eye as well. And then her dad, who a lot of the time, like William, he doesn't come across as necessarily like this really stereotypical, like old school dad. Like he's, you know, he's sympathetic and he's obviously got a good relationship with his wife and he loves his kids and all of that. But she is just so automatically assumed to be the one who would be in the wrong and would be doing all of this wrong stuff especially after losing the baby um that when the dad uh like confronts her afterwards he says you stopped the twins saying their prayers so like as he uses them not saying the lord's prayer as evidence against her whereas it's actually like glaring him in the face that it's the twins who couldn't say it and i just found that really interesting like he just he doesn't have any evidence to actually point towards thomasin as being the witch and in fact the evidence is pointing elsewhere but because of her standing in the family and in society it's just automatically assumed that she's the one that is like in the wrong
2: hundred percent like I modern families um, I, I don't see it as much but I sort of surrounded myself with people that I get along with people that I like but growing up I, I saw this dynamic this family dynamic all the time from like my mm. going around friend's house or whatever um, you know uh, my friends sisters or, or whatever would always be the uh, the runt of the litter sort of thing and it, yeah. and, and so it's really odd to to see that play out because you could take that family dynamic and put it in straight into modern day uh, and it would still work. Uh, like, just from the off, when um, the baby, I think Samuel, I think? I yeah. Wish I'd written yeah. it down. Thank you. Um. So, yeah, I, when he goes missing, like, the obvious thing to think of is, right, something is sinister here. The two choices are my daughter's done something and hidden, the baby, or mm-hmm. there's an evil presence not that a, a wolf would have come uh and taken uh taken the baby like, that's not what you would see that's not no. what you would think because you know where where is it she would have seen it go so the family automatically would rather just believe something else uh, and this is it just escalates of like oh i'd rather believe that i'm gonna lock the all the children in to a shed so i just don't have to deal with this until tomorrow mm. You know, it's a real, real strange way to behave, but you see it in dads all the time. Uh, well, at least, as I say, I did growing up. You see that sort <laughs> sort of thing where it's just like, you're rubbish at your job, dad. Sort yeah, it out. Yeah.
3: And Kate Dickey as the mum as well is um, just, I mean, Kate Dickey is such an incredible actress. Right. Whenever <laughs> she shows up in stuff, I always get this like. Like, she just freaks me out. Like, she's just so good and so kind of, I don't know, like, not sinister, but she plays that sort of um, threatening kind of role so well. There's almost like a sort of insidious, just, like, simmering anger, like, towards um, Thomason in this. And I've seen her sort of do that in other roles as well. I think Kate Dickie is amazing. And she's so... Like I almost find her like the most scary thing in this film. <laughs> because she she like almost can't be reasoned with. And then later on I think she becomes when when you realise, like when she sort of breaks down after um Caleb dies, she says to the dad, like, I just want to go back to England. Like you imagine what it must have been like to live in New England in right, those yeah. times. Um, especially for like a woman and as a mother of these four kids and she's just lost no sorry five kids she's lost (laughs) one baby into the woods to a witch she's just lost another boy um to the witch and two of them are unconscious because they might be witches and the other one is like this sort of burgeoning beauty um who you know she seems very sort of distrustful of like, I completely understand why she is the way she is, but at the same time, I find her really, like, insidious and scary.
2: Right, because she is th- so threatening until this moment in the film. What, what do you think of this? So, when she is uh, imagining that she can see her son again <gasps> and she starts breastfeeding again, and then what you see is the crow pecking at the nipple, um, at that point... I everything I've thought about her goes, because I'm lost. I, I It's the one bit of the film I'm just sort of confused about. Is that her finally snapping, she's lost it, or is this at the actual work of the witch?
3: I don't know which of those it is, but I think it's one of those. I would lean towards she's bewitched, but at the same time, if somebody said to me, no, it's definitely that she has just finally like fallen over the edge of sanity I would also I could like totally buy that I think talking about favorite moments and loving when films fuck me up I think the crow bit is probably my favorite bit either that or the baby pate it's it's oh. one of those two like I love I love all the <laughs> really fucked up shit Um, but it's like can you just imagine like oh my god it's just so hideous and I love it
2: I, right, the first watch, I missed it. I don't know what I was doing. Was I on my phone? I don't know. But um, yeah, <laughs> Hiding so, behind
3: the sofa, Paul, I should imagine.
2: How can you miss uh, a baby being mashed up? Like, I don't <laughs> know, right? I, and yet the next time, I was like, no, no, that's not in it. Because, of course, then you read all the reviews and everything. What?
3: what? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Come back to it. And then I'm like, oh, right. They, go, they don't just go there. They really go there. They linger on a knife. Um, right. wow, it's such a beautiful shot think, of it.
3: Oh. I think you're just you just don't expect the film to go there. You don't expect films to go there. Like, okay, fine, she snatched a baby, and then the, they don't get the baby back. Like, that's fine. Like, that's that's like fairy tale stuff, right? You don't expect to literally watch her in a giant pestle and mortar bash this baby up into some sort of like, I don't know, nourishing body mask. And it's it's <laughs> yes. just... And then like slather it all over herself. I mean, talk about jaw on the floor moments. I was like, what the fuck is this? And also, more please.
2: Yeah, that's it. I loved the film on that first watch and I missed that. So just imagine coming back and then you're yeah. like, oh, wow. Okay. So they're going there. And this that's the thing with this film. It goes... Where you don't expect it to, even with like um um the boy uh, looking at his sister uh, in a lustful way as he leaves mm. the room and things like that, that sort of thing um you know it, if, if you're on your phone you're going to miss it, but it means so much in in the tale because you know he gives in to his desires uh ends up having it spewing up that apple so you've got all those religious metaphors coming in everywhere left right, and yeah. center and this is a great and thing like about the
3: this. The Snow White metaphors as well with, like, the witches. Yes! Like, it's so layered. I love it.
2: It, That's the thing. You can read a lot into this film. I was last night, very late at night, just going through a few breakdowns and things of it, and the the odd thing I found was everyone's got a slightly different uh, viewpoint on it. So, Mm. uh, and I love that. That must mean that, you know, Robert Eggers must have been quite coy in his explanation of things, uh, to the public and like, well, make of that bit what you will, sort of thing. Yeah, I like I love that. that. But what what is also great, and uh, we've got to mention the ending here, is that again, it doesn't leave it so you're like, oh, what's all that mean now? You know that what the hell that means. You want to yeah. sell your daughter off. You want to like gradually belittle her through years and years of this like treatment. Something's going to give, uh, and that gave. Um, w- I can only imagine what was it like when you saw that.
3: I might have like air punched, maybe like just absolute celebration. I I I think some people criticize it. I think for being too literal, or maybe that it shouldn't have tipped over into the supernatural. And actually, it's scarier. Up until the point where she actually like rises into the air, right. but I I disagree with that. I love I love that it's it's genuinely supernatural because it feels like a rug pull. But because it feels like a rug pull, because all the way along it, everybody thinks she's a witch, but the audience doesn't believe she's a witch, right? And right, you know that the witch is in the woods. So I thought what the film that I was watching was The Witch is actually in the woods. The Witch of the title is in the woods. And everybody's pointing the finger at Thomason and it is this um, commentary on uh, adolescence and the patriarchy and um, womanhood and all of this stuff, which it is. But I thought that that was like all it was. And then at the end, as this like ultimate, fuck you, she's like, do you know what? If you're all going to think that I'm a witch and accuse me of being a witch, then fuck it, I'll be a witch. Like, yes, I would like a pretty dress, actually. I would like to have some butter, please. So fuck the lot of you. I'm going to go off and hang with my naked besties and have a little fly around the campfire. I'm 100% into it.
2: Well, you've said it. So you've got the choice of that sort of life and you've seen how they've lived for the past year, it says a year later, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, or you've got this exciting type of life that um, you only see a tiny glimpse of and that, what, maybe it's like two minutes long, that whole piece, Um, uh, it seems a lot more exciting, a lot more, you know, tempting, all you've got to do is sign your soul away, yeah, okay, (laughs) I'm up for that, let's enjoy life.
3: exactly and by that point like literally what are her prospects going to be so her all of her family are dead what yes. what else is she going to do and i love that it doesn't turn out that she's been a witch all along i love that she has been she has been pushed into this position and she therefore makes this decision like in front of you to kind of rest back control of her life um, or as much control as you can get if you're you know if you just signed your soul away to the devil but otherwise literally what are her options and if everybody's just going to believe that she's a witch anyway why the fuck not
2: I think we're very much on the same page I, I (laughs) I take it we would both recommend this but before I ask you a final question about it did you have any problems with it What's the reason why you wouldn't give it a ten? Is there something that sort of lingers that you're not not into as much?
3: So yeah, I don't. I can't really put my finger on why it doesn't slip over into a ten because it is. It's like it's a nine. Like it is. It's so close. And I think it, there are some parts. I think it might be because of the language and the acting style of it. So I'm. I'm actually not an enormous Um, Anya Taylor-Joy fan I know I know that she's got an enormous fan base and I think she's I think she's talented but I I don't love her as much as some people love her as an actress right and I and she's young in this as well like you look back and it's only what like six or seven years ago but she looks she looks so I guess that's what it's like when you're young anyway yeah when you're old and craggy like us Paul you know it doesn't show so much (laughs) but when you're like you know between 2015 and like 2022 like you can see how little she is um and I I think she's very good but there are some parts of her performance that does like br- bring me out of it just slightly. Um, and also I think maybe on... Fir- it doesn't bother me so much now that I've seen it a couple of times and I, I know what's happening. But I do remember in that first watch getting a bit lost because of the language that's used and because of like some of the lines um they just sort of like run together and I actually found it like quite difficult in some at some points to sort of keep up with what was going on and like literally what they were saying to each other so I mean I think it's only like real sort of you know it's really like nitpicky stuff but just doesn't quite doesn't quite reach that like level of perfection but I mean I think it, it is really audacious, and that it large, well, pretty much entirely succeeds in what it was trying to do. Um, and I think that people who don't like that ending, um, maybe it's just that the kind of the the themes um, and the messages like behind the film maybe just aren't for them, um, because I can't think of anything about it that if you're not like along for the ride, you wouldn't get to the end and like I say like be hugely satisfied and kind of celebrating like the journey that the film's taken you on
2: yeah I mean with the art house you people don't like you to have your cake and eat it uh, mm. and that's a that's the thing I mean it's the same with uh, hereditary when we were talking about that there is that issue of you've you've built built this up. It's very arty, and then you're going to schlock end it. Uh, not that I find it schlocky at all, but, you know, I, I can see what people think. Uh, but I don't agree with it. Um, no, I, neither
3: do I. I like a bit of schlock. I, I, <laughs> I want yeah. my cake and to eat it. Exactly.
2: I want it. Yeah. All right. Okay. So my one criticism, for what it's worth, is the colour palette I noticed this time oh. around is just so washed out at points. It's
3: really washed, yeah.
2: It doesn't have to be like that all the time I I particularly noticed it when the witch was quite young and coming out and you saw the sort of red cape thing that she was wearing over herself Mm. and I just thought oh, if that was a little bit brighter you know just that little bit brighter it would have really punched and made such a difference in that scene Um, but you know if that's my criticism it's not it's not good enough Um, (laughs) okay right so final question here The Northman, Eggers' new film Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm so excited. Is it something that that is on your radar? Do you know anything about it? I know you're much more glued in than me.
3: Um, no, I haven't even seen the trailer because I don't really watch trailers. Um <laughs> right. But I saw all the buzz around the trailer and I've seen a couple of stills of Alexander Skarsgård with his shirt off and I'm quite into that. Come on. Um, I love Vikings in general as a kind of, um, like as... Like I like sort of Norse mythology, and um, I'm not an expert, but I kind of i I like that like style of um, of, of storytelling. Um, so like, there's I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's an amazing show um, called Just Vikings, um, right? Which yeah, is, like so good. Um, and oh my god, like I remember when I was a kid <laughs> again, probably around my Harryhausen years. There is a um, kirk douglas tony curtis film called the vikings which has got one of the best pieces of theme music ever um at oh mate treat yourself sunday (laughs) afternoon have a roast sit down to the vikings i know that like um kirk douglas is a bit problematic now we're not real we're not allowed to like him as much as we used to but um it's this film, it is so good. So anyway, this is a long way, way round of saying, yes, I'm really excited for Robert Eggers, The Northman. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but I will be there.
2: Uh, Becky, thank you for coming on. Um, before you go, <laughs> anything you got coming up that you want to mention? I
3: would say um, my podcast, Don't Point That Horror at Me, um, with Jill Nolan when we uh, go through the 90s point horror books um, one by one we are by this point um, when, when this goes out we will be into our third season so our seasons now are slightly shorter than the long one we did in our first year because we did an episode every month back then but um we realized that was far too much work so we kind of now do them like when we can but we're planning to have at least six episodes out um this year so keep an eye on don't point that horror at me um and we should be a couple of months into our new project over at evolution of horror so mike munzer uh, Louise Blaine, Brad Hansen and myself are doing a thing called Fresh Blood which is for patrons of um, or Patreons, I'm not sure <laughs> of uh, Evolution of Horror and it's more of like a kind of Um, monthly like magazine show so it's going to be looking more at um, sort of reviewing like current stuff in cinemas and on streaming um, stuff that's coming out with like physical releases, Louise is going to be doing like horror games and stuff so it's just going to be a bit more of a sort of roundup style thing Um, so that should be, I think that starts in March so by April that should have a couple out Um, but yeah that's it
2: that's that A team right there, right? That A team. Yeah. A-team. <laughs> yeah. That was a track called A Witch Stole Sam. Mark Corvin's score here is pretty much like the film, incredible. I would say actually that this is one of the best scores that I've heard to come out of the 21st century at all. It is breathtaking. On the surface, this is simply a horror score born from a bass drone and built up in places with a few dips in others, all thanks to trad strings and woodwind instruments. And of course, there's a human voice there as well, and that's layered on top. And I agree, yeah, it is just that. But simply because an artist has all the tools they need to paint, it doesn't mean that they're going to be a Pollock or a Monet or a Picasso or a Krasner. This score is magic. It goes the extra mile. It has that something about it, it works perfectly in the context of this film, it enhances the visuals at points and it manipulates my very perspective at others and what is going on on that screen. The jump cuts don't utilise the score, there are no high pitched stabs at those opportune places, it doesn't rely on the cliche. Separate from this film, it is genius. No matter what menial tasks that I might be doing, when I put this album on, it freaks me the hell out. Its omnipresence of dread is so gleefully executed by Corvin, you can tell that he's loving it. This guy wants to fuck you up and turn you inside out with this sound, and he fully succeeds. So where can you find this film? Well, in the UK, The Witch is available on VOD, for sure. I couldn't find it for free anywhere. And you can stream it for free in America, on like Fubo and Showtime and Canopy and DirecTV, a couple of others as well. As for podcasts, this is where I would head you. I would try the Scaredy Cat podcast. They put out their take on The Witch in March 2017. And also the Unenthusiastic Critic podcast. They put out their 90-minute chat more recently in October 2021. And thank you very much, Becky, for this one. That's it. That's your number two. That is the witch. What could possibly be better than a 10 out of 10 number two pick? Oh, yeah. It's the 10 out of 10 number one pick. My favourite film from the 21st century. Well, I have three that I would choose from, I reckon. you got *Midsummer*, which contains everything that I hoped it would. From the shock opening, to the guttural punch of the ending. And on repeated viewings, I discovered all the trippy moments that I'd missed the first time around. And I couldn't stop thinking about it for months and months on end. I do throw the word around a lot, but yeah, it's amazing. Then we have the Jonathan Glazer directed Under the Skin and that's a movie that made me feel everything. It connected with me in such a profound way that I didn't know that a movie could actually hit me like that. Well, it hadn't since Star Wars when I was a kid or Hellraiser or Nightmare on Elm Street when I was a teenager. Under the Skin had that same impact for me as an adult. Everything from the script, the acting, cinematography, set dressing, the effects, the score, the whole of this thing just floored me. And then we have this movie, my very favourite film from 2016, a movie that couldn't be further from Under the Skin in *Midsummer*. This is a pretty low budget, two people in one building shoot that rose above any and all expectations that I had for it. This one had me on the edge of my seat from the very setup onwards and it's a slow burn. How can a slow burn do that? I think I was just manipulated by the dread infused score. I was actually scared for these people on the screen, not just from what I was viewing, but from what was brewing inside of me from this masterfully created piece of art. And this is key. The ending delivered exactly what I would have wished it to deliver. It's a monumental finish to a film that I had spent 100 minutes with. And that was the exact right length for it as well. So, to surmise, depending on what day you actually ask me this, it could be any of those three films. But right now, my favourite film of the 21st century is one that I absolutely love. Of course, it is A Dark Song.
1: I've done this three times. Once it worked, twice it didn't.
4: I have to hear his voice again.
1: This is your last chance to back out. Seal it. You do know what we're taking on? A shifting consciousness. Becoming warm with the ceremony. Pure. And may all my transgressions be washed. My transgressions. This is real stuff we're playing with. Real angels, real demons. How do we know that it started? You'll see it soon enough. May my light be here now. May protecting me. Drink it! Just remember who's
4: paying for this. Do you know the ritual? No. You agreed to do whatever I said!
1: Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Solomon. Sorry, Mr. Solomon.
2: Take off your jeans. Here is that letterboxed synopsis. Not everything can be forgiven. A determined young woman and a damaged occultist risk their lives and souls to perform a dangerous ritual that will grant them what they want. And so we have an MVP. The return of the MVP. Steve Oram delivers the most delightful performance in this one. I absolutely despise this guy from the off and yet for some reason, there's enough in the performance to make me empathise with him. I understand exactly why he acts like he does. Also, I want to recommend him in the nutso horror comedy Sightseers, but this performance is something else, it simply blew me away. MVP for sure, and just perfect casting. Again, another thing, perfect casting for a dark song. So, I was rather delighted when podcast regular and all round good egg, also my life partner, Benjamin Bowles, he was up for a chat with me on this one. What I needed to know was is this film as incredible as I think it is? Let's find out. I know.
6: <laughs> and may all my transgressions
1: be washed. And make this is the price of our rage. Breaks it. Don't fear it. May my light be here now, guiding me. No, 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 don't cross the line. We'll be stuck here forever. Maybe we should stop. We can't stop. I need you to be driven. Protecting Protecting me. Protecting
2: me. Welcome to A Year in Horror, Benjamin Bowles.
0: Hello, Paul. How are you?
2: I tell you what. I watched this film again today and I am ecstatic about it. I also watched Nicolas Cage in Vampire's Kiss today. Never seen that one before and I love that. So I'm in such a good film mood. It's so rare. I love this film. We're talking about a dark song. Now, I'm really interested in hearing anybody else's opinion whether you love it whether you hate it whether you're indifferent i can't wait to get into this just as i say this is my favorite film in the last decade so it's huge huge for me so i want you to give us because i'm going to know just from the way you do it just a spoiler free synopsis if you would
0: well paul before i do the spoiler i don't want to piss on your chips too much but you're you're saying that this is your favorite film of the last decade
2: Not just horror, film.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, I can't wait to discuss it. Do you want my synopsis? It's quite a boring one. It's quite a boring one. Give me the boring. A grieving woman enlists the help of a wannabe shaman to perform a ritual so she can speak to her
2: late son. What a synopsis. We're ready for the film. Yeah, that's it. We're going to jump in. Best film ever. Let's go. (laughs) The first thing I've got to mention, I'm going to mention a few things. This is rated so high by me because I love occult films. I love that supernatural element to films. Automatically, I'm in. I never go to the cinema or rent something without thinking to myself, "Oh, this has already got a few extra points just for being a cult." So this was already on a winner for me. And... You could put this in the same bracket as like films like The Craft or more recently, The Love Witch, Hereditary, The Vavitch, or even go way back and like The Omen, something like that. Like that's fine. But I say that this is in that same wheelhouse, but there is something really different about it. And I think it's because it's like following a textbook. It's like a manual that you're going through and it's really odd in that way. Uh, It's a grueling ritual that you're watching Grueling's right Paul. oh god right so me saying all this right (laughs) basically this is a slow burn as you can get but i think it's really well crafted your initial feelings you've given us that synopsis your initial feelings of this me saying all that stuff and mentioning these big hitter films as well where does it stand for you in general
0: this this is interesting This is an interesting, interesting film. And the best way I can describe or talk about this is talk about what's happened since I've watched it. So I watched it um, last night. Great. So. My first notes were about the the way it was lensed, the way it looks. Um, Very deliberate cinematography very static images the blocking was very static essentially the the way i would describe it is every frame looks like a photo there seems but there's a bit of movement and i love that i absolutely love the fact that the director and the cinematographer had the confidence to to be really deliberate and specific with everything because there's a massive massive trend at the moment obviously this was 2017 there's a massive trend at the moment for every horror film or every independent film to be shaky cameras not really thinking about the angles too much but an ultra 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 close-ups so it's all a bit sort of blurry it comes in and out of focus and that's fine because that's the aesthetic and there's nothing aesthetic and there's nothing wrong with that but there was a real clarity in their vision, essentially, and I loved right. I loved the confidence in it. So that was the first thing. And actually, I could have watched a whole film just looking at the visuals, and I could have enjoyed it. So that was that was good. And then it got to about an hour in, and I was I was sort of enjoying it. It was it was pretty slow. It was again pretty deliberate, but I think that really feeds into the confidence of the story that they were telling. So I didn't have a problem with that. Ace so thought, far, brilliant this is great so far isn't it and then I stopped for a quick wee and I thought oh okay an hour in so there's, there's 40 minutes this is going pretty quick considering it's a slow film this is going pretty quick and then I pop, popped it back on for the last 40 minutes and I thought this is dragging now why is this why is the why is the seconds of half taking so long and I just thought firstly at the moment I stopped the film I thought well as usual you could have cut 15-20 minutes out of that. Right. And it wouldn't have and it wouldn't have missed anything, but that's that's my bugbear anyway. So that's the sort of that's on me. So I came out the film thinking, yeah, it that was all right. That that was fine, but a bit boring in places and a bit baggy. Now today I feel totally different about it. Mm. Um, be- because because some of the scenes have really stayed with me, and I'm liking it more as I reflect on it. So there's a hell of a lot going on in this film. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. That's not to say that because of the, the the glacial pace. That's not to say that I could maybe watch it again. But the more I think about it, the more I like it. And as I said, it's a, it's a really interesting film.
2: I would like to come back to that towards the end when we talk about like the problems with the film. So, OK. Yeah. Pop a pin in that, because I'd be really interested. I feel like this film's got one issue. It still doesn't make it go down to a nine for me. It's still ten. Like There's there's nothing you could do to improve this. But there's a bit that I can see people going, oh, you've done it, you dickheads. So we'll get there. That's a real interesting take. And I, I will pick up on that cinematography thing right now. I was watching a couple of scenes back after I sat for it again today and i did notice that a lot of it to make it more interesting to the viewer a lot of it was done when they were sitting down sort of on the floor so that the the camera would pan around really low so you would get the feet and you would get the hands you wouldn't even get the face sometimes and it would be such a of a slow pan and yeah and and like you said these these things are so well so well put together that you could be taking photos of these frames because it's just sometimes beautiful to look at. Like watching a behind the scenes today as well, this house was a shithole that they were filming in. It was horrible and they done they dressed it so well considering mm-hmm. I mean in certain scenes you can tell oh they're in a shithole but what they do with light and magic, I I, I don't know how they did it, but it just sometimes just looks stunning. Did you know that the director, uh, Liam Gavin, the director, did you know that he wrote this uh, as well, but he spent a year with rewrites, just himself, just rewriting and rewriting just to whittle it down because he knew this was like his chance. This is his big project. And going through it, obviously he's picturing, like, this is this scene. This is how this is going to pan towards that foot or whatever. So this was already like at least a year before he even was casting or anything like that he'd already had all this vision in his head now i don't know if that's a normal thing not being a filmmaker but i know once i've gone through a second draft of anything that's usually me done but (laughs) to spend a year on it jesus as a filmmaker yourself does that sound reasonable or does that sound like overkill
0: no it sounds totally reasonable if you look at the finished product because every single scene is pitch perfect there's not everything everything within a scene is meant to be there and there's a reason for that to be there it's an incredibly well thought out production in that way Um, and everything would have been looking at that everything would have been storyboarded within an inch of its life whereas if you've got an indie flick that would that like i said earlier that is more handheld and very much them just filming the scene from top to bottom a few times and then and then sort of essentially crafting it in the edit that can be produced a lot quicker in terms of the pre-production and the pre-planning this however is totally is is completely opposite i would have thought that he was so clear in his mind's eye what every single scene and every single shot will look like that actually the editing process probably didn't take too long because there was nothing to craft he knew what it was Mm. it's a bit like how hitchcock used to direct his films he would basically have a, a really strict storyboard and he would shoot that storyboard so there would be no filming from top to bottom and crafting it at all it was this is what we're doing Um, And then the editing process is really, really quick. And this, I don't know his, the the director's process, but I can imagine because of the way it looked, that's the way he would uh, go about it. And in terms of a year, well, yeah, I mean, um, a few months to write the the script and then actually plan all the the technical stuff after that. So yeah, I can believe that. I can believe that it was a year.
2: As I say, I just think that's crazy. I think you you got your idea. Pitch it, and do it, Jesus. That's why I don't think I'll ever be a, a filmmaker, to be honest with you. Though. One day,
0: Paul, you never know.
2: You never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. But, well, this is a, a triple hander, really. You've got two members of the cast, and you got the director, and it's these three. And whenever I was watching those behind the scene things uh, that I found all over YouTube, it was just the three of them. You know, they're they're in a corner. Uh, someone is like on a phone, filming them, like having a chat in a corner of the 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 room or whatever so it seemed like a real intense process so I want to talk to you about the cast first of all because this is obviously going to fall apart if they don't get it right so we're going to start with the sort of famous one if you can with Steve Oram first of all I, I call him Oram but uh, today someone online called him Oram so I don't know we'll see, we'll see I'll, I'll call ur- him
0: Oram I quite like Oram all right yeah, let's Oram.
2: call him Oram uh, he yeah. plays Joseph Sullivan <laughs> Uh, and he's scruffy uh, and he is not like the normal sort of shaman or man that will be planning these rituals for people. He just looks like, uh, you know, yeah, everyday Joe. In fact, a little bit scruffier and rougher. He says at one point he's from a council estate or something like that. And it's the sort of thing where you would think, like, when you're that age, you get into something, whether it be like football or with movies. Uh, and at that some point, he's just got into magic. Yeah, so that's what it feels like with him. He's just lived with this his whole life. And at one point, he says, uh, yeah, I've done the ritual three times. Uh, once it worked, twice it failed. I'm like, Jesus, okay, nice. Is he good? Because I can never tell, right? Because I find him infuriating at points. I find him a bully. So instantly, I don't like his character. But like, he's meant to be unlikable, I think. How do you feel about like Steve O'Ram's performance?
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If you were screaming at the TV because of his bullying tactics and his horrible behaviour, it means that the, the script is doing its job. So that's good. Weirdly, I did find his performance... A bit patchy and i don't know if that's just because i didn't get it or it genuinely was patchy but there was just a few lines and maybe this is a script fault. actually thinking about it but there's just a few lines where i thought "Well, that, that sticks out a bit why maybe it was slightly on the nose or it's just a bit clunky or maybe it was the performance i couldn't really work it out maybe you need a, a second viewing although i'm not going to watch it again because um it's, <laughs> it's an interesting film but it's just a film i don't want to watch again or maybe in time. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, Oram, Oram. So yeah, I, I think he w- what he did do very well is the yeah the odd line stuck out, but he really did play that asshole very well. There was a scene, and a, I, I'm not I'm not sure this is a spoiler. You can cut it out if if you think it is. But there's a scene where he is telling her essentially what to do when she's naked. Right. Yep. And that now that was uncomfortable but not because of the subject matter um, because of his performance especially at the uh how should we say it, at the very end it it didn't i don't think he quite was comfortable with it or something i don't know there was there was no kind of authenticity throughout that whole scene which bothered me slightly but i'm really you know in 1 hour 40 minutes you're, you're very unlikely to get a pitch perfect performance from it from, from anybody, really. It, it was a solid performance. It was a solid performance, but patchy.
2: If you're talking about the scene, I think you're talking about where it does, in fact, climax. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's a real interesting scene. I don't know how to feel about that because it brings some authenticity to the man's character. So, like I you know now. A lot more about him and his personality that he would do that. You know, he just needs to get this out of his system. There's many ways to get it out of your system rather than the way he does. Let's just say that. But what, yeah, what a weird thing that he did there. Also, there's a scene where, and this is a bit spoilery, but not too bad, where he uh, takes a knife and his reaction to that when he gets stabbed is very odd. It's a really odd reaction and i can only imagine it was in the script it got okayed because it's in the film but yeah it's a really strange reaction so if you if you haven't watched this yet or you're going to rewatch it just take a notice of them two scenes because yeah you're right the, the one you've pulled out there <coughs> pulled out there and the really? one hey thanks buddy slow but it was you know i think it was worth it and the, the and the one of the the stabbing yeah interesting
0: just going back right, go on. and is me sort of thinking out loud but what i did like about that scene it was very much a trigger scene because straight after that the power dynamic i thought changed between them because she she actually was empowered after that maybe because she saw him as as just a normal bloke a dirty old bloke basically rather than this sort of this shaman who's who's holds the keys to um to the afterlife so yeah i think there was and and a lot of anger there was a lot of anger from her after that scene so the power dynamic did shift slightly so it was an important scene and i don't and i'm certainly not saying that it didn't need to be there because as you said there was very much the whole dynamic between those two was a power trip really Mm. and he was consistently saying you will do what i tell you like that that was the thing it wasn't about the money it was about him having control. And I felt that after that scene, it did shift slightly.
2: Well, Catherine Walker, who plays Sophia, she said in just an interview that she felt their dynamic was one of a sort of husband and wife type relationship by that point, because they've been in there months. And after that stuff happens, they find this balance where they, like in a marriage, you will just get to used to each other and you love each other and you hate each other Uh, and they've finally found that sort of thing so i think you're quite right yeah the, the power dynamic is now sort of back where it should be you know they're level pegging in this thing because after all he does want something out of this as well he's not just doing it for the cash okay uh so i've mentioned her Catherine walker she plays sophia and on my very first watch i just thought this is the best performance i just thought this is how do wow i I can't believe what i'm seeing and i've called out now i've now watched this today was my sixth time that i've watched it so (laughs) i I just love this film so much and yeah i think i think Oram. ram i think he steals it but i reckon she's still pretty good but this whole thing of revenge is played out in horror so much how do you think it works within this story arc In terms of revenge, I loved it
0: because it was a different take on it. It would have been so simple for them to to so simple for the director to end it like most revenge horror movies. And with the last. Pretty much the last scene, last five minutes, where there was a total tone shift, where um, again, spoilers, where you see the thing and it is revealed. Um, I don't think I'm giving away too much there. Um, it's a massive, massive tone shift. However, credit to the film, I wasn't taken away or taken out of the story. Actually, it, it's they're they're the to me some of the most powerful scenes. So I think that was that lovely sort of twist on it, and that and that reveal really worked well. And it's not really about revenge, but just a simple sort of twist. But yeah the simple twist turning revenge into acceptance or forgiveness is is so it was so beautifully done and and it comes back to what i was saying at the very start the director and it also feeds into what you were saying having worked on this so much he he knew it inside out and backwards and with that comes a, a huge huge confidence and clarity and message and that feeds into the ending so no this is this is what we're doing um i'm sure when he was giving drafts two three four out to people people were saying what are you doing you know this this just doesn't fit but he was so sure and solid on on his idea that it, that he pulled it off so i loved what they did with with revenge and going also back to the actor they say that 75% of directing is casting. And the the casting director, and I presume the director also had a say, absolutely nailed it. You couldn't, she, she was, she looked dead behind the eyes in the in the best possible way because of what she's been through. But she still gave enough to be engaging. And that's 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 high praise indeed. It's so difficult to get that balance.
2: I'm getting the feel that you're coming around to this film now, Ben.
0: Told you the more I talk about this film, the more I like. But that's why, as I said, it's such an interesting film. Because um, without you know, wishing to sound like I'm an X Factor, it is a journey, this film, a journey from when you stop watching it to two days later, three days later, and, and you just sort of think, Oh, I didn't that's you know, the as I said, these scenes are coming back to me and these messages are coming back to me. And yes, yeah, just
2: it's, it's a very layered, interesting piece. Well, I've said already it's my favorite in the last 10 years. Um, mm. I, I wanted to find an issue with it, something to, to sort of n- knock it down a few pegs. How dare it? How dare it be better than all the other films that I've seen in the last 10 years for crying out loud? So <laughs> I found something in this right. I I can pick a little hole. And this for me is towards the end, okay. but it's more of a, a filmmaking choice rather than a story choice and it's when the demons are in the hallway or in the cellar and you actually see them and they're actually there and they've been manifested and I just there's too many spooks around when so far this film has been completely based even though it's completely supernatural in tone and you just see every now and again a little sprinkle of is that magic? Did that bird fly in the window because of magic or was it happenstance? you know that sort of thing. Now you are in this realm and it's confirmed. So you've already got that sort of spoiler before any potential ending that actually this is this is happening. Um, and I, I think that that's a little problem. It's not a major problem because it is done so well. But again, I could have done without the spooky spooks. And it's the same for that film that I loved so much a couple of years back when it came out called Host, with the um, the Zoom call horror. When they showed the, the creature there, and I was just like, oh, wish you hadn't have done that. Wish you hadn't have shown that guy. Yeah. Anything from you that you can pull out uh, that has got a problem with this film?
0: Problem-wise is the pacing. I mean, it, it didn't have to be one hour 40 right it could have easily been 90 minutes one hour 25 and i don't two hours or two hours or two and a half either way but apart from that no i mean I, i i just it was it was baggy in places but if that's if that's the worst thing i can say about it but i come back to it i've changed my opinion slightly since watching it and it's in a favorable way so perhaps talk to me in a week and i say one hour 40 bang on who knows in, in in a week i might be saying this is the best film i've seen in in 10 years who knows and i might have watched it six times yeah yeah that's that's the only thing on reflection that i would say was a was a real problem just 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 the pacing um but I, but i totally get i totally get that that was a creative decision because of the cinematography the way it was lent the way the story was being told it was slow Um, So I I totally get the fact that every scene is elongated to within an inch of its life before it becomes ridiculous. You know, that's that was just the way of it. Um, That was the way that the film was put together and crafted. So I get it. I get it.
2: Just to reiterate what you've just said, there was a point in the film where I think they realised this was happening and they twisted it a little by repeating something that happens in the film uh, so it repeats in in real time. So why did it do that again? You know, and that was, I thought, really clever because all of a sudden your mind's now not fixated in, oh, I've just checked the time. It's only 36 minutes gone or whatever yeah. it was. Uh, you've just thrown this at me. Okay, so something weird is finally happening here. So I thought they addressed that quite well, but I can see I'm, I'm, I'm always... With something that you love so preciously, when someone else watches it or uh, gets involved with it or listens to it, if it's music, you're always like, Oh God, I hope they like it. <laughs> you know, I hope I'm not an idiot. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so I, I can see already that it's your favourite film of the last 10 years as well, Ben. So that's good. Good to know.
0: Last 20 years, Paul. <laughs> hey, that's the stuff.
2: Um, final question. Right. Final question here. Uh, I think I know the answer. I definitely would, but speaking to our listeners now, as someone that didn't instantly bond with it do you recommend that other people if they have not seen this to just dig this one out
0: yeah absolutely watch it and then actually sort of try and review it in your head two or three days later that's what i would say just sort of let it marinate let the film marinate for for two or three days um and then see if it see if any of it has stuck Uh, And see if any of the the visuals, and um, we haven't even talked about the soundtrack, the score, that's beautiful too. There's a real atmosphere and, and tone to this film. So yeah, I would absolutely recommend it for anybody listening, yeah.
2: Benjamin Bowles, thank you so much. A pleasure as always, Mr Waller. Ray Harmon composed the score and it is absolutely stunning, yet again. Have I mentioned how much I love this film yet? Now, I can't surmise what some of these instruments actually are. Every now and again, there's a traditional instrument being played traditionally. Then, the traditional instruments are being played in unconventional ways. And I recognise most of the sounds... But I just can't place them. I don't know where they're coming from. Sometimes it just feels so ancient. Just like those demons and angels that they attempt to conjure up in this film. And when I do notice what the instrument is. Well, for instance, I just love the strings on this so much. It sounds like they're actually being played on an instrument that's just been sat in a cellar. They sort of tune it up, sort of, just decades and decades of neglect. And it just scratches and screeches the notes out. It sounds so old, it sounds unwelcoming, it makes me feel tense, so intense, this palette. The instrumentation that is used to form this palette of sound creates a completely intense score. Can I marry a dark song? Can I? Where can you find this film? Well, streamers, here we go. In the USA, you can stream this for free on Shudder, AMC+, direct tv and plex. And in the UK, you're looking at IMDb TV and you can access that for free if you've got an Amazon Prime account. Also, I don't know how long this is going to be on there for, but I should mention it because that's how Benjamin viewed it. It is available on YouTube right now, although as I say, I just don't know how long it's going to be on there. I think it's breaking all sorts of laws. You'll probably end up going to jail, just as I will for even mentioning it. Maybe. Like to live life on the edge. As for podcasts, in their occult season, I was pretty chuffed. Evolution of Horror, everybody's favourite. They covered a dark song, and Mike chatted with the director all about it. And uh, also, I recently listened to Horrified Chicken podcast, and both of them covered this masterpiece in April 2020. Happenstance, pure happenstance. And that's it. That is my number one movie from 2016 and beyond. A dark song. <laughs> Okay, that was 2016. That was a lot more than I thought it would be. Okay, right, let's do it. Uh, We're going to choose from next month. Now, I've made a paper bag this time. Uh, Again, I don't know what I do with regards to uh, losing these numbers each time. But here we go. I'm just going to give it a tap and a shake. Going to reach in and grab one. What are we doing next month? Let's have a look. We are doing 1981. easy, easy, Friday the 13th part 2 um, Mad Max part 2 Video Nasties, I think uh, The Burning is there. Is that 81? yeah it is we've got Fulci, I'm sure, Fulci's got stuff in there, there's going to be loads right 80s horror, it's always a winner 81, that's a really popular one oh, that's going to be a busy show good <laughs> of course it's good, it's the 80s hey, between me and you feel free to contact the podcaster a year in horror at gmail.com with any films that you think we missed here or simply if you want to have a go at me, why not? I can take it. You can follow me at Walla Notwella on Letterboxd and on Instagram and you can hit me up at NotwellaPod on Twitter. Also, be aware if you are on Letterboxd then I've listed all the years that we've tackled so far and I've attached all the films into the proper positions. It looks pretty. It's nerdy. I like that. Don't forget www.patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. The first £3 tier is just going to help the show running. And it's for anyone that enjoys what I'm doing here. And they just want to show the appreciation for the show. I love you. Thank you so much for doing that. But if you want to spend an extra quid so you get to the £4 tier, the video nasties tier... Just remember that you're going to get all that warmth in your heart, plus you're going to get all the extras, all that lovely extra content that I put out there, including the radio show, all the video nasty things, you name it, it's going to be there. And of course, a show wouldn't be a show without me saying a great big thank yous to my wife, Claire Waller, who you probably know by now does all the Photoshop posters for each episode. She also does the Sci-Fi Corner jingle. And the spooky jingle, One Trick Pony, they designed the logo for A Year in Horror. Max Newton and Lucy Foster, they did the intro music for the A Year in Horror theme. And of course, I've got to thank all the guests here. Benjamin Bowles, Becky Dark, Howard Smith, James Davies, Andy from Road to Nowhere podcast. And of course, Laura Jane Barnett from London Horror Movie Club. But most of all, most of all. Thank you so much for listening right to the end of this thing. I'm going to see you all next month for a podcast that is going to feature some proper, gnarly 1981 stuff. Until then, be horrible to one another. An an you
1: know what the most
0: frightening thing in the world is? It's fear.
1: Every